Part Five, Chapter Eighteen of Anna Karenina by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Nathan Haskell Doyle. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Marianne Spiegel. Levin could not bear to look at his brother, could not even be himself and feel at ease in his presence. When he came into the sick man's room, his eyes and his motions entirely absorbed him, and he did not see and did not realize the details of the frightful situation. He perceived the horrid odor. He saw the uncleanliness and disorder. He heard the sick man's groans, and it seemed to him that there was no way of helping it. It did not occur to him to investigate how the body lay under the coverlid, how the lean, long legs, the thighs, the back, were doubled up and accommodated. Nor did he ask whether he might not help him lie more easily and do something to improve his condition, at least to make a bad situation less trying. The mere thought of these details made a cold chill run down his back. He was undoubtedly persuaded in his own mind that it was impossible to do anything either to prolong his life or to lighten his sufferings, and the sick man, feeling instinctively that his brother was powerless to help him, was irritated. And this made it all the harder for Levin. To be in the sick room was painful to him, to be away from it was still worse, and he kept leaving the room under various pretexts and coming back again, for he was unable to stay alone by himself. Kitty thought— felt, and acted in an entirely different way. As soon as she saw the sick man she was filled with pity for him, and this pity in her womanly heart, instead of arousing a sense of fear or repulsion, as it did in her husband's case, moved her to act, moved her to find out all the details of his condition, and to ameliorate them. And as she had not the slightest doubt that it was her duty to help him, neither did she doubt the possibility of it, and she set herself to work without delay. The details, the mere thought of which repelled her husband, were the very ones that attracted her attention. She sent for a doctor. She sent to the drug store. She set her own maid and Maria Nikolaevna to sweeping, washing, and dusting, and she even helped them herself. She had all needless articles carried away, and she had them replaced by things that were needed. She went several times to her room, paying no heed to those whom she met on the way, and she unpacked and carried with her sheets, pillowcases, towels, shirts. The waiter who served the table d'hote dinner to the engineers several times came with a surly face when she rang, but she gave her orders, and with such gentle authority that he never failed to execute them. Levin did not approve of all this. He did not believe that any advantage would result from it for the sick man. More than all, he was afraid that it would worry his brother. But Nikolai, although he seemed to be indifferent, did not lose his temper and only felt a little ashamed, and watched with a certain interest everything she did for him. When Levin came back from the doctor's, whither Kitty had sent him, he saw, on opening the door, that under Kitty's directions they were changing the sick man's linen. His long, white back and his stooping shoulders, his prominent ribs and vertebrae, were all uncovered, while Marya Nikolaevna and the lackey were in great perplexity over the sleeves of Nikolai's nightshirt, into which they were vainly striving to get his long, thin arms. Kitty, quickly closing the door behind Levin, did not look at him, but the sick man groaned, and she hastened to him. "'Be quick,' she said. "'There, don't come near me,' muttered the sick man angrily. "'I myself—' "'What do you say?' asked Marya. But Kitty had heard and understood that he was ashamed of being stripped in her presence. "'I am not looking. I am not looking,' she said, trying to get his arm into the nightshirt. "'Marya Nikolaevna, you go to the other side of the bed and help us.' "'Please, go, and get a little flask out of my bag, and bring it to me,' she said to her husband. 
you know, in the side pocket. Please bring it, and in the meantime we will finish arranging him. When Levin came back with the flask, he found the invalid lying down in bed, and everything about him had assumed a different appearance. The oppressive odor had been exchanged for that of aromatic vinegar, which Kitty, pursing up her lips and puffing out her rosy cheeks, was scattering about from a glass tube. The dust was all gone, a rug was spread under the bed. On the table were arranged the medicine vials, a carafe, the necessary linen, and Kitty's English embroidery. On another table, near the bed, stood a candle, his medicine, and powders. The sick man, bathed, with smoothly brushed hair, was lying between clean sheets, and propped up by several pillows, was dressed in a clean nightshirt, the white collar of which came around his unnaturally thin neck. A new expression of hope shone in his eyes as he looked at Kitty. The doctor whom Levin went for, and found, at the club, was not the one who had been treating Nikolai, and had aroused his indignation. The new doctor brought his stethoscope, and carefully sounded the sick man's lungs, shook his head, wrote a prescription, and gave explicit directions first about the application of his remedies, and then about the diet which he wished him to observe. He ordered fresh eggs, raw, or at least scarcely cooked, and seltzer water with milk, heated to a certain temperature. After he was gone, the sick man said a few words to his brother, but Levin heard only the last words, "'Your Katya.' But by the way he looked at Kitty, Levin knew that he had said something in her praise. Then he called Katya, as he had named her. "'I feel much better already,' he said to her. "'With you I should have gotten well long ago. How good everything is!' He took her hand and lifted it to his lips, but as if he feared that it might be unpleasant to her, he hesitated put it down again, and only caressed it. Kitty pressed his hand affectionately between her own. "'Now, turn me over on the left side, and all of you go to bed.' No one heard what he said. Kitty alone understood. She understood because she was ceaselessly on the watch for what he needed. "'Turn him on the other side,' she said to her husband. "'He always sleeps on that side. Is it not pleasant to call the man? I cannot do it. Can you?' she asked of Marya Nikolaevna. "'I am afraid not.' Levin, as terrible as it was to put his arms around this frightful body, to feel what he did not wish to feel under the coverlid, submitted to his wife's influence, and assuming that resolute air which she knew so well, and putting in his arms, took hold of him, but in spite of all his strength he was amazed at the strange weight of these emaciated limbs. While he was, with difficulty, changing his brother's position, Nikolai threw his arms around his neck, and Kitty quickly turned the pillows so as to make the bed more comfortable, and carefully arranged his head and his thin hair, which was again sticking to his temples. Nikolai kept one of his brother's hands in his. Levin felt that the sick man was going to do something with his hand and was drawing it toward him. His heart sank within him. Yes, Nikolai put it to his lips and kissed it. Then, shaken with sobs, Levin hurried from the room without being able to utter a word. End of chapter 18 Part 5, Chapter 19 of Anna Karenina by Leo Tolstoy Translated by Nathan Haskell Doyle This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Marianne Spiegel He has hidden it from the wise, and revealed it unto children and fools, Thus thought Levin about his wife, as he was talking with her a little while later. He did not mean to compare himself to a wise man in thus quoting the gospel. He did not call himself wise. 
but he could not help feeling that he was more intellectual than his wife and Agafya Mikhailovna, that he employed all the powers of his soul when he thought about death. He knew also that many great and manly minds whose thoughts on the subject he had read had tried to fathom this mystery, but they had not seemed to know one hundredth part as much as his wife and his old nurse. Agafya Mikhailovna and Katya, as his brother called her, and he also now began to take pleasure in doing, had, in this respect, a perfect sympathy, though otherwise they were entirely opposite. Both unquestionably knew what life meant and what death meant, and though they were, of course, incapable of answering or understanding the questions that presented themselves to Levin's mind, they not only had their own way of explaining these great facts of human existence, but they also shared their belief in this regard with millions of human beings. As a proof of their well-grounded knowledge of what death was, they without a second of doubt knew what to do for those who were dying, and felt no fear of them. While Levin and others, who could talk much about death, evidently knew nothing about it because they were afraid of it, and actually had no notion what to do when men were dying. If Constantine Levin had been alone now with his brother Nikolai, he would have gazed with terror into his face, and with growing terror awaited his end with fear, and been able to think of nothing to do for him. What was more, he did not know what to say, how to look, how to walk. To speak of indifferent things seemed unworthy, impossible. To speak of melancholy things, of death, was likewise impossible. To be silent was even worse. If I look at him, he will think I am studying him, I fear. If I do not look at him, he will believe that my thoughts are elsewhere. To walk on tiptoe irritates him. To walk as usual seems brutal. Kitty apparently did not think about herself, and she had not the time. Occupied only with the invalid, she seemed to have a clear idea of what to do, and she succeeded in her endeavor. She related the circumstances of their marriage. She told about herself. She smiled on him. She caressed him. She cited cases of extraordinary cures, and it was all delightful. She understood how to do it. The proof that her activity, Anagafya Mikhailovna's, was not instinctive, was animal, was above reason, lay in the fact that neither of them was satisfied with offering physical solace or performing purely material acts. Both of them demanded for the dying man something more important than physical care, something above and beyond merely physical conditions. Agafya Mikhailovna, speaking of the old servant who had lately passed away, said, Thank God, he had confession and extreme unction. God grant us all to die likewise. Katya, though she was busy with her care of the linen, the medicines, and the bed sores, even on the first day succeeded in persuading her brother-in-law to receive the sacrament. When Levin, at the end of the day, returned from the sick-room to their own two rooms, he sat down with bowed head, confused, not knowing what to do, unable to think of eating his supper, of arranging for the night, of doing anything at all. He could not even talk with his wife. He felt ashamed of himself. But Kitty showed extraordinary activity. She had supper brought. She herself unpacked the trunks, helped arrange the beds, and even remembered to scatter Persian powder upon them. She felt the same excitement and quickness of thought which men of genius show on the eve of battle, or at those serious and critical moments in their lives, those moments when, if ever, a man shows his value, and all the preceding days of his life are only the preparation for these moments. The whole work made such rapid progress that before twelve o'clock all their things were neatly and carefully arranged. Their two hotel rooms presented a thoroughly homelike appearance, 
The beds were remade, the brushes, the combs, the hand mirrors were taken out, the towels were in order. Levin found it unpardonable in himself to eat, to sleep, even to speak, and he felt that every motion he made was inappropriate. But she took out her toilet articles and did everything in such a way that there was nothing in the least disturbing or unsuitable in it. Neither of them could eat, however, and they sat long before they could make up their minds to go to bed. "'I am very glad that I persuaded him to receive extreme unction tomorrow,' said Kitty, as she combed her soft, perfumed hair before her mirror, sitting in her dressing-sack. "'I never saw it given, but Mama told me that they repeat prayers for restoration to health.' "'Do you believe that he can get well?' asked Levin, as he watched the narrow parting at the back of her little round head disappear as she moved the comb forward. "'I asked the doctor. He says that he cannot live more than three days. But what does he know about it?' I am glad that I persuaded him, she said, looking at her husband from behind her hair. All things are possible, she added, with that peculiar, almost crafty expression which came over her face when she spoke about religion. Never, since the conversation that they had had while they were engaged, had they spoken about religion. But Kitty still continued to go to church and to say her prayers with the calm conviction that she was fulfilling a duty. Notwithstanding the confession, which her husband had felt impelled to make, she firmly believed that he was a good Christian, perhaps even better than herself, and that all he had said about it was only one of his absurd masculine freaks, such as he liked to indulge in, just as he did when he jested about her border anglaise, as if good people mended holes, but she purposely created them. There, this woman, Marya Nikolaevna, would never have been able to persuade him, said Levin, and, I must confess that I am very, very glad that you came— you made everything look so neat and comfortable. He took her hand, but did not kiss it. It seemed to him a profanation even to kiss her hand, in the presence of death, but he pressed it, as he looked with contrition into her shining eyes. "'You would have suffered too terribly all alone,' she said, as she raised her arms, which covered the glow of satisfaction that made her cheeks red, and began to coil up her hair and fasten it to the top of her head. "'No, she would not have known how.' But fortunately, I learned many things at Soden. Were there people there as ill as he is? Yes, more so. It is terrible to me not to see him as he used to be when he was young. You can't imagine what a handsome fellow he was. But I did not understand him then. Indeed. Indeed. I believe you. I feel that we should have been friends, said she, and she turned toward her husband frightened at what she had said, and the tears shone in her eyes. Yes, would have been, he said mournfully. He is one of those men of whom you can say with reason that he was not meant for this world. Meanwhile, we must not forget that we have many days ahead of us. It is time to go to bed, said Kitty, consulting her tiny watch. End of chapter 19 Part Five, Chapter Twenty of Anna Karenina by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Nathan Haskell Doyle. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Marianne Spiegel. Death. On the next morning, communion was administered to the sick man. Nikolai prayed fervently during the ceremony. There was such an expression of passionate entreaty and prayer in his great eyes, gazing at the sacred image placed on a card table covered with a colored towel that it was terrible for Levin to look at him so, 
for he knew that this passionate entreaty and hope made it all the harder for him to part from life, to which he clung so desperately. He knew his brother and the trend of his thoughts. He knew that his skepticism did not arise from the fact that it was easier for him to live without a religion, but from the fact that gradually his religious beliefs had been supplanted by the theories of modern science, and therefore he knew that his return to faith was not logical or normal, but was ephemeral and due simply to his unreasonable hope for recovery. He knew likewise that Kitty had strengthened this hope by her stories of extraordinary cures. Levin knew all this, and was tormented by these thoughts as he looked at his brother's beseeching, hopeful eyes, as he saw his difficulty in lifting his emaciated hand to touch his yellow forehead to make the sign of the cross, and saw his fleshless shoulders and his hollow, rattling chest, unable to contain the life which he was begging to have restored. During the sacrament, Levin did what he had done a thousand times, skeptic that he was. "'Heal this man, if thou dost exist,' he said, addressing God, "'and thou wilt save me also.' The invalid felt suddenly much better after the anointing with the holy oil. For more than an hour he did not cough once. He assured Kitty, as he kissed her hand with smiles and tears of thanksgiving, that he felt well, that he was not suffering, and that he felt a return of strength and appetite. When his broth was brought, he got up by himself and asked for a cutlet. Hopeless as his case was, impossible as his recovery was, as any one might see by a glance, Levin and Kitty spent this hour in a kind of timid joy. "'Is he not better?' "'Much better.' It is astonishing. Why should it be astonishing? He is certainly better, they whispered, smiling at each other. The illusion did not last. The sick man went serenely to sleep, but after half an hour his cough wakened him, and instantly those who were with him, and the sick man himself, lost all hope. The actuality of suffering unquestioned made them forget their late hopes. Nikolai, giving no thought to what he had believed a half hour previously, and apparently ashamed even to remember it, asked for a bottle of iodine to inhale. Levin gave him the bottle, which was covered with a piece of perforated paper, and his brother looked at him with the same imploring, passionate look which he had given the image, as if asking him to confirm the words of the doctor, who attributed miraculous virtues to the inhaling of iodine. "'Kitty isn't here,' he asked in his hoarse whisper, when Levin had unwillingly repeated the doctor's words. "'No,' then I may speak. I played the comedy for her sake. She is so sweet. But you and I cannot deceive ourselves. This is what I put my faith in, said he, pressing the bottle in his bony hands as he smelt the iodine. About eight o'clock in the evening Levin and his wife were taking tea in their room, when Marya Nikolaevna came running toward them all out of breath. She was pale, and her lips trembled. He is dying, she whispered. I am afraid that he is dying. Both of them hurried to Nikolai. He had lifted himself and was sitting up in bed, leaning on his elbow, his head bowed, his long back bent. How do you feel? asked Levin, tenderly, after a moment of silence. I feel that I am going, whispered Nikolai, struggling painfully to speak, but as yet pronouncing the words distinctly. He did not raise his head, but only turned his eyes up, without seeing his brother's face. "'Katya, go away,' he whispered once again. Levin sprang up, and in an imperative whisper bade her to leave the room. 
I am going, the dying man whispered once again. Why do you think so? asked Levin, for the sake of saying something. Because I am going, he repeated, as if he had an affection for the phrase. It is the end. Marya Nikolaevna came to him. If you would lie down, it will be easier for you, said she. Soon I shall be lying down, he remarked softly. Dead, he added with angry irony. Well, lay me back, if you will. Levin laid his brother down on his back, took a seat near him, and, hardly able to breathe, gazed into his face. The dying man lay with his eyes shut, but the muscles of his forehead twitched from time to time as if he were in deep thought. Levin involuntarily tried to comprehend what was taking place in him, but in spite of all the efforts of his mind to accompany his brother's thoughts, he saw by the expression of his calm, stern face, and the play of the muscles above his eyebrows, that his brother perceived mysteries hidden from him. Yes. Yes. So, the dying man murmured slowly, with long pauses, lay me down. Then long silence followed. So, he said suddenly, with an expression of content, as if all had been explained for him. Oh, Lord, he exclaimed, and he sighed heavily. Marya Nikolaevna felt of his feet. They are growing cold, she said in a low voice. Long, very long, as it seemed to Levin, the sick man remained motionless, but he was still alive, and sighed from time to time. Weary from the mental strain, Levin felt that in spite of all his efforts he could not understand what his brother meant to express by the exclamation, So. He seemed to be far away from the dying man. He could no longer think of the mystery of death. The most incongruous ideas came into his mind. He asked himself what he was going to do. To close his eyes? Dress him? Order the coffin? Strange. He felt perfectly cold and indifferent. He did not experience any sense of grief or loss, or even the least pity for his brother. The principal feeling that he had was one almost of envy for the knowledge which the dying man would soon have, and which he himself could not have. Long he waited by his bedside, expecting the end. It did not come. The door opened, and Kitty came in. He got up to stop her, but instantly heard the dying man move. Don't go away said Nikolai, stretching out his hand. Levin took it, and angrily motioned his wife away. Still holding the dying man's hand, he waited a half-hour, an hour, and still another hour. He ceased to think of death. He thought what Kitty was doing. Who was occupying the next room? Had the doctor house of his own? Then he became hungry and sleepy. He gently let go the dying man's hand, and felt of his feet. His feet and legs were cold, but still Nikolai was breathing. Levin started to go away on his tiptoes, but again the invalid stirred and said, Don't go away. It began to grow light. The situation was unchanged. Levin gently rose, and without looking at his brother went to his room and fell asleep. When he awoke, instead of hearing of his brother's death as he expected, he was told that he had come to his senses again. He was sitting up in bed, was coughing, and wanted something to eat. He became talkative, but ceased to talk about death, and once more began to express the hope of getting well again, and was more irritable and restless than before. No one, not even his brother or Kitty, could calm him. 
He was angry with them all, and said disagreeable things, and blamed everyone for his suffering, demanded that the famous doctor from Moscow should be sent for, and whenever they asked him how he was, he replied with expressions of anger and reproach. I am suffering terrible, unendurable agony. He suffered more and more, especially from his bed sores, which they were wholly unable to heal, and his irritability kept increasing, and he reproached them all bitterly, especially because they did not fetch the doctor from Moscow. Kitty tried every means in her power to help him, to calm him, but it was all in vain, and Levin saw that she was suffering physically as well as morally, although she would not confess it. The sentiment of death, which had been aroused in all by his farewell to life that night when he had summoned his brother, was mightily weakened. All knew that he would inevitably and speedily reach the end, that he was already half dead. They all felt that the sooner he died the better it would be, yet, concealing this, they still gave him medicines from vials, sent for new medicines and doctors, and they deceived him and themselves and one another. All this was falsehood, vile, humiliating, blasphemous falsehood. And this falsehood was more painful to Constantine than to the others, because he loved his brother more deeply, and because nothing was more contrary to his nature than lack of sincerity. Levin, who had long felt the desire to reconcile his two brothers before Nikolai should die, wrote to Sergey Ivanovitch. He replied, and Constantine read the letter to the sick man. Sergey Ivanovitch could not come, but he asked his brother's pardon in touching terms. Nikolai said nothing. "'What shall I write him?' asked Constantine. "'I hope you are not angry with him.' "'No, not at all,' replied Nikolai, in a tone of vexation. "'Write him to send me the doctor.' Three cruel days passed in this manner, the invalid remaining in the same condition. All those who saw him, the hotel waiter and the landlord, and all the lodgers, and the doctor, and Marya Nikolaevna, and Levin and Kitty, now wished only one thing, and that was his death. The invalid only did not express any such wish, but, on the contrary, continually grumbled because they did not send for the doctor, and he took his remedies, and he spoke of life. Only at rare moments, when opium caused him for a little to be oblivious of his incessant agony, he would, in a sort of doze, confess what weighed on his mind even more heavily than the others. Oh! if this could only end, or when this is over. His sufferings, growing ever more and more severe, did their work and prepared him to die. There was no position in which he could find relief. There was not a moment in which he could forget himself. There was not a place or a single member of his body that did not cause him pain, agony. Even the memories, the impressions, and the thoughts about his body now awakened in him the same feeling of repulsion as his body itself. The sight of other people and their talk, their individual recollections, were torment to him. Those who surrounded him felt it and instinctively refrained in his presence from using any freedom of motion, from conversation or expressing their wishes. All his life was concentrated in one feeling, suffering, and in an ardent desire to be freed from it. Evidently there was accomplishing in him that revolution whereby he would be induced to look on death as a consummation of his desires, even as a joy. Hitherto every individual desire called forth by suffering or privation, as by hunger, weariness, thirst, 
was satisfied by some bodily exercise producing pleasure. But now privation and suffering got no relief, and any attempt at relieving them caused new suffering. And so all his desires were concentrated on one thing, the wish to be delivered from all his woes, and the very source of his woes, from his body. But he had no words to express this thought, and he continued out of habit to ask for what once gave him comfort, but could no longer satisfy him. "'Turn me on the other side,' he would say, and then immediately wished to return to his former position. "'Give me bullion. Take it away. Speak, and don't stay so still.' and as soon as anyone began to speak, he would shut his eyes and show fatigue, indifference, and disgust. On the tenth day after their arrival, Kitty was taken ill. She had a headache and nausea, and all the morning felt unable to get up. The doctor declared that it was caused by her emotions and weariness. He advised quiet and rest. Yet after dinner she got up and went as usual with her work to Nikolai's room. He looked at her sternly and smiled scornfully when she told him that she had been ill. All day long he had never ceased to cough and to groan piteously. "'How do you feel?' she asked. "'Worse,' he replied with difficulty. "'I am in pain.' "'Where do you feel the pain?' "'All over.' "'You will see. The end will come today,' said Marya Nikolaevna, in an undertone. Levin hushed her, thinking that his brother, whose ear was very acute, might hear. He turned and looked at him. Nikolai had heard, but the words made no impression. His look remained, as before, reproachful and intense. "'What makes you think so?' asked Levin, when she followed him into the corridor. "'He has begun to pick with his fingers.' "'What do you mean?' "'This way,' she said, plucking at the folds of her woolen dress. Levin himself noticed that all that day the invalid had been plucking at his bedclothes, as if to pick off something.' Marya Nikolaevna's prediction came true. Toward evening Nikolai had not strength enough to lift his arms, and his motionless eyes assumed an expression of concentrated attention. Even when his brother and Kitty bent over him in order that he might see them, this look remained unchanged. Kitty had the priest summoned to say the prayers for the dying. While the priest was reading the prayer, the dying man gave no sign of life. His eyes were closed. Levin, Kitty, and Marya Nikolaevna were standing by his bedside. Before the prayers were ended, Nikolai stretched himself a little, sighed, and opened his eyes. The priest, having finished the prayer, placed the crucifix on his icy brow, then put it under his stole, and after he had stood for a moment or two longer, silently he touched the huge, bloodless hand. "'It is all over,' he said at last, and started to go away. But suddenly, Nikolai's lips trembled slightly, and from the depths of his breast came these words, which sounded distinctly in the silent room. Not yet. Soon. A moment later his face brightened, a smile came to his lips, and the women who had been summoned hastened to lay out the body. The sight of his brother and the propinquity of death awakened in Levin's mind that feeling of horror at the inexplicability and the unavoidableness of death just as he had felt on that autumn night when his brother came to see him. This feeling was now more intense than ever. More than ever he felt his inability to fathom this mystery, and even more terrible seemed to him its proximity. But now, thanks to his wife's presence, this feeling did not lead him to despair, for in spite of his terrors he felt the need of living and loving. He felt that love saved him from despair, 
and that this love became all the stronger and purer because it was threatened. And scarcely had this mystery of death taken place before his eyes, ere he found himself face to face with another miracle of love and of life equally unfathomable. The doctor confirmed his surmise in regard to Kitty. Her discomfort was the beginning of pregnancy. End of chapter 20「ツクリスマスは私たちの心に響きます。He had felt himself in too great perplexity to be able to decide anything for himself, and he did not know what he wanted. But, having placed his fate in the hands of others, who were willing enough to occupy themselves with his affairs, he was ready to accept whatever might be proposed to him. Only when Anna had taken her departure, and when the English governess sent to inquire if she should dine with him or by herself, did he for the first time clearly realize his position. And its full horror. The hardest element in this state of affairs was that he could not coordinate and reconcile his past with the present. Nor was it the past, when he lived happily with his wife, that disturbed him. The transition from that past to the knowledge of his wife's infidelity he had borne like a martyr. That state of things was trying, but it was incomprehensible to him. If at the time when his wife had confessed her wrong to him she had left him, He would have been mortified and unhappy, but he would not have been in that inextricable, incomprehensible position in which he now felt that he was. He could never now reconcile his present position, his reconciliation, his love for his sick wife and the alien child, with the present state of things. In other words, with the fact that, as a reward for all his sacrifices, he was now deserted, disgraced, useful to no one, and a ridiculous laughing stock to all. The first two days after his wife's departure, Alexey Alexandrovitch received petitioners and his chief secretary, attended committee meetings, and ate his meals in the dining room as usual. Without trying to explain to himself why he did this, he directed all the powers of his mind to one single aim to seem calm and indifferent. As he answered the questions of the servants in regard to what should be done about Anna's rooms and her things, He made superhuman efforts to assume the manner of a man for whom the event that had occurred was not unexpected, and had nothing in it outside the range of ordinary, everyday events, and he accomplished his purpose. No one would have detected in him any sign of despair. But on the second day after her departure, Cornai handed him a milliner's bill which Anna had neglected to pay, and told him that the manager of the business himself was waiting. Alexey Alexandrovitch had the man shown in. Excuse me, Your Excellency, said the manager, for venturing to disturb you, but if you order us to apply to her ladyship personally, you will kindly give us her address? Alexey Alexandrovitch seemed to the manager to be cognitating. Then, suddenly turning round, he sat down at the table. Dropping his head into his hands, he sat there a long time in that position. He tried several times to speak, but still hesitated. Cornai, Understanding his baron's feelings, asked the manager to come another time. When he was left alone again, Alexey Alexandrovitch realized 
that he no longer had the power to keep up the role of firmness and serenity. He gave orders to send away the carriage which was waiting for him, and he declined to see callers, and would accept no invitations out to dine. He felt that he could not endure the disdain and derision which he clearly read on the face of this manager and of Cornay, and of all without exception whom he had met during these two days. He felt that he could not defend himself from the detestation of people, because this detestation did not arise from the fact that he had himself committed any wrong action, for in that case he might have hoped to regain the esteem of the world by improvement in his conduct, but from the fact that he was unhappy, and with an unhappiness that was odious and shameful. He knew that it was precisely for the reason that his heart was torn that they would be pitiless to him. It seemed to him that his fellow men persecuted him as dogs tortured to death some poor cur maimed and howling with pain. He knew that the only safety from men was to conceal his wounds from them, and he had instinctively tried for two days to do so. But now he felt that he no longer had the strength to continue the unequal struggle. His despair was made deeper by the knowledge that he was absolutely alone in his suffering. In all Petersburg there was not one man to whom he could confide all his wretchedness, not one who would have any pity for him now, not as a lofty functionary, or even as a member of society, but simply as a human being in despair. He had no such friend. Alexey Alexandrovitch had lost his mother when he was ten years old. He had no remembrance of his father. He and his one brother were left orphans with a very small inheritance. Their uncle Karenin, a man of influence, held in high esteem by the late emperor, took charge of their bringing up. After a successful course at the gymnasium and the university, Alexey Alexandrovitch, through his uncle's aid, made a brilliant start in official life, and, full of ambition, devoted himself exclusively to his career. He formed no ties of intimacy either in the gymnasium or in the university, or afterward in society. His brother alone was dear to him, but he entered the Department of Foreign Affairs, went abroad to live, and died soon after Alexey Alexandrovitch's marriage. While Karenin was governor of one of the provinces, Anna's aunt, a wealthy lady of the governmental capital, introduced her niece to this governor, who was young for such a position, if not in years, and she forced him to the alternative of proposing marriage or leaving the city. Alexey Alexandrovitch long hesitated. There seemed as many reasons in favor of this step as there were opposed to it. There was no definite reason which should impel him to break his rule, when in doubt, don't. But Anna's aunt sent word to him through a friend that he had compromised the young lady, and that, as a man of honor, he must offer her his hand. He offered himself, and gave her, first as his betrothed, and afterward as his wife, all the affection which was in his power to show. This attachment prevented him from feeling the need of any other intimacy. And now, out of all the number of his acquaintances, he had not one confidential friend. He had many so-called friends, but no intimates. There were many persons whom Alexey Alexandrovitch could invite to dinner, or ask favors of, in the interest of his public capacity, or protection for some petitioner, with whom he could freely criticize the actions of other people, and of the highest officers of government. But his relations to these people were exclusively confined to this official domain, from which it was impossible to escape. There was one university comrade with whom he had kept up an intimacy in after years, and to whom he would have confided his private sorrows, 
but his friend was a trustee of the classical educational institutes in a distant province. Of all the people in Petersburg, the nearest and most practicable acquaintances were his director of the chancellery and his doctor. Mikhail Vasilyevich Sludin, manager of affairs, was a simple, good, intelligent, and well-bred man, and he seemed full of sympathy for Karenin, but five years' association in official service put a barrier between them which silenced confidences. Alexey Alexandrovitch, having signed the papers which he brought, sat in silence for some time looking at Sludin, and kept trying, but found it impossible to open his heart to him. The question, "'Have you heard of my misfortune?' was on his lips, but it ended in his saying as usual when he dismissed him, "'You will have the goodness to prepare me this work.' The doctor was another man who was well disposed to him, but between them there had long been a tacit understanding that they were both full of business and in a hurry. Alexey Alexandrovitch did not think at all about his women friends, or even the chiefest among them, the Countess Lydia Ivanovna. Women simply as women were strange and repulsive to him. End of chapter 21「Anna Karenina」by Leo Tolstoy Translated by Nathan Haskell Doyle This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Marianne Spiegel Alexey Alexandrovitch forgot the Countess Lydia Ivanovna, but she did not forget him. She reached his house at his darkest moment of solitary despair, and made her way to his library without waiting to be announced. She found him still sitting in the same position, with his head between his hands. "'I foresaw la consigne,' she said as she came in, with rapid steps, breathless with emotion and agitation. "'I know all, Alexey Alexandrovitch, my friend.' And she pressed his hand between both of hers, and looked at him with her beautiful, melancholy eyes. Alexey Alexandrovitch, with a frown, arose, and, having withdrawn his hand, offered her a chair. "'I beg you to sit down,' "'I'm not receiving because I am suffering, Countess,' he said, and his lips quivered. "'My friend,' repeated the Countess, without taking her eyes from him, and suddenly she lifted her eyebrows so that they formed a triangle on her forehead, and this grimace made her ugly yellow face still uglier than before. Alexey Alexandrovitch felt that she pitied him and was on the point of crying. A wave of feeling overwhelmed him. He seized her fat hand and kissed it. "'My friend,' she said again, in a voice breaking with emotion. "'You must not give yourself up to grief. Your grief is great, but you must find consolation.' "'I am wounded. I am killed. I am no longer a man,' said Alexey Alexandrovitch, letting go the countess's hand, but still looking into her eyes, swimming with tears. "'My situation is all the more unbearable because I can find neither in myself nor outside of myself.' any help toward endurance of it. "'You will find this help, not in me, though I beg you to believe in my friendship,' said she, with a sigh. "'Our help is love, the love which he has given for an inheritance. His yoke is easy,' she continued, with the exalted look that Alexey Alexandrovitch knew so well. "'He will sustain you and will aid you.' Although these words were the expression of an emotion aroused by their lofty feelings, as well as the symbolical language characteristic of a new mystical exaltation just introduced into Petersburg, and which seemed extravagant to Alexey Alexandrovitch, 
nevertheless he found it pleasant at the present time to hear them. "'I am weak. I am humiliated. I foresaw nothing of this. And now I cannot understand it.' "'My friend,' repeated Lydia Ivanovna. "'I do not mourn so much my loss,' said Alexey Alexandrovitch. "'But I cannot help a feeling of shame for the situation in which I am placed before the world. "'It is bad. And I cannot.' I cannot bear it. Is it not you who have performed this noble act of forgiveness which has filled me, and all, with admiration? It is he dwelling in your heart. So, too, you have no cause for shame, said the countess, ecstatically raising her eyes. Alexey Alexandrovitch frowned, and pressing his hands together, he began to make his knuckles crack. You must know all the details, he said in his shrill voice. Man's powers are limited, Countess, and I have reached the limit of mine. All this day I have wasted in details, domestic details, arising, he accented the word, from my new, lonely situation. The servants, the governess, the accounts. This is a slow fire devouring me, and I have not the strength to endure it. Yesterday I scarcely was able to get through dinner. I cannot endure to have my son look at me. He did not ask me any questions— but I know he wanted to ask me, and I could not endure his look. He was afraid to look at me, but that is a mere trifle. Karenin wanted to speak of the bill that had been brought him, but his voice trembled, and he stopped. This bill on blue paper, for a hat and ribbons, was a recollection that made him pity himself. "'I understand, my friend,' said the Countess Lydia Ivanovna. "'I understand it all. Aid and consolation you will not find in me,' but I have come to help you if I can. If I could free you from these petty annoying tasks, I think that a woman's word, a woman's hand, are needed. Will you let me help you? Alexey Alexandrovitch was silent and pressed her hand gratefully. We will look after Sir Rosa together. I am not strong in practical affairs, but I can get used to them, and I will be your economka. Do not thank me. I do not do it of myself." I cannot help being grateful. But, my friend, do not yield to the sentiment of which you spoke a moment ago. How can you be ashamed of what is the highest degree of Christian perfection? He who humbles himself shall be exalted. And you cannot thank me. Thank him. I pray to him for help. In him alone we can find peace, consolation, salvation, and love. She raised her eyes to heaven and began to pray, as Alexey Alexandrovitch could see by her silence. Alexey Alexandrovitch listened to her, and this phraseology, which before seemed not unpleasant to him, but extravagant, now seemed natural and soothing. He did not approve of this new ecstatic mysticism. He was a sincere believer, and religion interested him principally in its relation to politics, and the new doctrine which arrogated to itself certain new terms— for the very reason that it opened the door to controversy and analysis, had aroused his antipathy from principle. Hitherto he had taken a cold, and even hostile, attitude to this new doctrine, and had never discussed it with the countess, who was carried away by it, but had resolutely met her challenge with silence. But now, for the first time, he let her speak without hindrance, and even found a secret pleasure in her words. "'I am very, very grateful to you.' both for your words and for your sympathy, he said when she had ended her prayer. 
Again the countess pressed her friend's hand with both of hers. "'Now I am going to set to work,' said she, with a smile, wiping away the traces of tears on her face. "'I am going to Sir Rosa, and I shall not trouble you except in serious difficulties.' And she got up and went out. The countess Lydia Ivanovna went to Sir Rosa's room, and, while she bathed the scared little fellow's cheeks with her tears, she told him that his father was a saint and his mother was dead. The countess fulfilled her promise. She actually took charge of the details of Alexey Alexandrovitch's house, but she exaggerated in no respect when she declared that she was not strong in practical affairs. It was necessary to modify all her arrangements, since it was impossible to carry them out, and they were modified by Cornai, Alexey Alexandrovitch's valet, who, without anyone noticing it, gradually took it on himself to manage the whole establishment, and calmly and discreetly reported to his baron, while the latter was dressing, such things as seemed best. But, nevertheless, the countess's help was to the highest degree useful to him. Her affection and esteem were a moral support to him, and, as it gave her great consolation to think, she almost succeeded in converting him to Christianity. In other words, she changed him from an indifferent and lukewarm believer into a fervent and genuine patrizan of that new method of explaining the Christian doctrine which shortly after came into vogue in Petersburg. It was easy for Alexey Alexandrovitch to put his faith in this exegesis. Alexey Alexandrovitch, as well as the countess and all those who shared their views, was not gifted with great imagination, or at least that faculty of the mind, by which the illusions of the imagination have sufficient conformity with reality to cause their acceptation. Thus he saw no impossibility or unlikelihood in death existing for unbelievers and not for him. That because he held a complete and unquestioning faith, judged in his own way, his soul was already free from sin, and that even in this world he might look upon his safety as assured. It is true, Alexey Alexandrovitch dimly felt the frivolity, the fallacy, of this presentation of his faith. He knew that when, without a thought that his forgiveness of his wife was the act of a higher power, he gave himself up to this immediate feeling, he experienced a greater happiness than when, as now, he constantly thought that Christ dwelt in his soul, and that by signing certain papers he was following his will. But it was indispensable for Alexey Alexandrovitch to think so. It was so indispensable to have, in his present humiliation, this elevation, imaginary though it was, from which he, whom everyone despised, could look down on others, that he clung to it as if his salvation depended on it. End of chapter 22《The Countess Lydia Ivanovna had been married when she was a very young and enthusiastic girl to a very wealthy, aristocratic, good-natured, and dissolute young fellow. Two months after the wedding her husband deserted her. He had replied to her effusive expressions of love with scorn and even hatred, which no one who knew the Count's kindliness and were not acquainted with the faults of Lydia's romantic nature, could comprehend. Since then, without any formal divorce, they had lived apart, and when the husband met his wife, he always treated her with a venomous scorn, the reason for which it puzzled people to understand. The Countess Lydia Ivanovna had long ago ceased to worship her husband. 
but at no time had she ceased to be in love with some one. Not seldom she was in love with several at once, men and women indiscriminately. She had been in love with almost every one of any prominence. Thus she had lost her heart to each of the new princes and princesses who married into the imperial family. Then she had been in love with a metropolitan, a vicar, and a priest. Then she had been in love with a journalist, three savophiles, and Komazarov. Then with a foreign minister, a doctor, an English missionary, and finally Karinin. These multifarious love affairs, and their different phases of warmth or coldness, in no wise hindered her from keeping up the most complicated relations, both with the court and society. But from the day when Karinin was touched by misfortune, she took him under her special protection, from the time when she began to busy herself with his domestic affairs and work for his well-being, she felt that all her former passions were of no account, but that now she loved Karinin alone with perfect sincerity. The feeling which she cherished toward him seemed to her stronger than all the previous feelings. As she analyzed her sentiment and compared it with the former ones, she clearly saw that she would never have been in love with Komazarov if he had not saved the emperor's life, or with Ristich Kuzitsky had there been no Slav question. But Karinin she loved for himself, for his great, unappreciated spirit, for his character, for the delightful sound of his voice, his deliberate intonations, his weary eyes, and his soft white hands with their swollen veins. Not only did the thought of seeing him fill her with joy, but it seemed to her that she saw on her friend's face the signs of the impression which she made on him. She did her best to please him, no less by her person than by her conversation. Never before had she spent so much time and attention on her toilet. More than once she found herself wondering what would happen if she were not married, and he were only free. When he came into the room, she colored with emotion, and she could not restrain a smile of ecstasy if he said something pleasant to her. For several days the countess had been in a state of great excitement. She knew that Anna and Vronsky were back in Petersburg. It was necessary to save Alexey Alexandrovitch from seeing her. It was necessary to save him even from the tormenting knowledge that this wretched woman was living in the same town with him, and he might meet her at any instant. Lydia Ivanovna made inquiries through acquaintances so as to discover the plans of these repulsive people, as she called Anna and Vronsky, and she tried to direct all of Karinin's movements so that he might not meet them. The young aide to the emperor, a friend of Vronsky's, from whom she learned about them, and who was hoping through Countess Lydia Ivanovna's influence to get a concession, told her that they were completing their arrangements and expected to depart on the following day. Lydia Ivanovna was beginning to breathe freely once more, when on the next morning she received a note, the handwriting of which she recognized with terror. It was Anna Karenina's handwriting. The envelope was of paper thick as bark, the oblong sheet of yellow paper was adorned with an immense monogram, the note exhaled a delicious perfume. Who brought it? A messenger from the hotel. The countess waited long before she had the courage to sit down and read it. Her emotion almost brought on an attack of asthma, to which she was subject. At last, when she felt calmer, she opened the following note written in French. Madame la Comtesse, the Christian sentiments filling your heart prompt me, with unpardonable boldness, I fear, to address you. I am unhappy at being separated from my son, and I ask you to do me the favor of letting me see him once more before I depart. 
if I do not make direct application to Alexey Alexandrovitch, it is because I do not wish to give this generous-hearted man the pain of thinking of me. Knowing your friendship for him, I felt that you would understand me. Will you have Sir Rosa sent to me here, or do you prefer that I should come at an appointed hour? Or would you let me know how and at what place I could see him? You cannot imagine my desire to see my child again, and consequently you cannot comprehend the extent of my gratefulness for the assistance that you can render me in these circumstances. Anna. Everything about this note exasperated the Countess Lydia Ivanovna. Its tenor, the allusions to Karenin's magnanimity, the especially free and easy tone which pervaded it. Say that there is no reply, said the Countess Lydia Ivanovna, and, hurriedly opening her bouvard, she wrote to Alexey Alexandrovitch that she hoped to meet him about one o'clock at the birthday reception at the palace. I must consult with you in regard to a sad and serious affair. We will decide at the palace when I can see you. The best plan would be at my house, where I will have your tea ready. It is absolutely necessary. He imposes the cross, but he gives also the strength, she added, that she might somewhat prepare him. The Countess Lydia Ivanovna wrote Alexey Alexandrovitch two or three times a day. She liked this way of communication with him, as it had the elegance and mystery which were lacking in ordinary personal intercourse. End of chapter 23part five chapter twenty four of anna karenina by leo tolstoy translated by nathan haskell doyle this librivox recording is in the public domain read by marianne spiegel the congratulations were over as the visitors who had met at court went away they talked about the latest news of the day the rewards that had been bestowed and the changed positions of some high functionaries what should you say if the countess maria borisovna was made minister of war and the Princess Vatkoskaya, chief of staff, asked a little, grey-haired old man, in a gold-embroidered uniform, who was talking with a tall, handsome maid of honour about the recent changes. "'In that case I should be made one of the Emperor's aides,' replied the Fralina. "'Your place is already settled. You are to have charge of the Department of Religions, and Karinin is to be your assistant.' "'How do you do, Prince?' said the little old man, shaking hands with someone who came along. "'Were you speaking of Karinin?' asked the prince. "'Yes. He and Putyatov have been decorated with the order of Alexander Nevsky.' "'I thought he had it already.' "'No. Look at him,' said the little old man, pointing with his gold-laced hat toward Karinin, who was standing in the doorway, talking with one of the influential members of the Imperial Council. He wore the court uniform, with his new red ribbon across his shoulder. "'Happy and contented as a copper kopeck,' he added, pausing to press the hand of a handsome, athletic chamberlain passing by. "'No, he has grown old,' said the chamberlain. "'With cares. He spends all his time writing projects. He, the unfortunate man, will not let go until he has explained everything point by point.' "'What? Grown old? Il font de passants. I think the Countess Lydia is jealous now of his wife.' "'There. I beg you not to speak ill of the Countess Lydia.' Is there any harm in her being in love with Karinin? Is it true that Madame Karinin is here? Not here, at the palace, but in Petersburg. I met her yesterday with Alexey Vronsky. Bras de zoo, bras de zos. On the Morskaya. C'est un homme qu'on began the chamberlain, but he broke off short to salute and make way for a member of the imperial family who was passing. 
Thus they were talking about Alexey Alexandrovitch, criticizing and ridiculing him, while he himself was barring the way of the imperial councillor, and, without pausing in his explanations, lest he should lose him, was giving a detailed exposition of a financial scheme. Alexey Alexandrovitch, about the time his wife left him, had reached a situation painful for an official, the culmination of his upward career. This culmination had been reached, and all clearly saw it, but Alexey Alexandrovitch himself was not yet aware that his career was ended. Either his collision with Stremov, or his trouble with his wife, or the simple fact that Alexey Alexandrovitch had reached the limit that he had been destined to attain, the fact remained that everyone saw clearly that his official race was run. He still held an important place, he was a member of many important committees and commissions, but he was one of those men of whom nothing more is expected. His day was over. Whatever he said, whatever he proposed, seemed antiquated and useless. But Alexey Alexandrovitch himself did not realize this. On the contrary, now that he had ceased to have an active participation in the business of the administration, he saw more clearly than before the faults and mistakes that others were making, and considered it his duty to indicate certain reforms which should be introduced. Shortly after his separation from his wife, he began to write his first pamphlet about the new tribunals, and proposed to follow it up with an endless series of similar pamphlets, of no earthly use, on all the different branches of the administration. He not only did not realize his hopeless situation in the official world, and therefore did not lose heart, but more than ever he took delight in his activity. He that is unmarried is careful for the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord, but he that is married is careful for the things of the world, how he may please his wife, said the Apostle Paul. And Alexey Alexandrovitch, who now directed his life in all respects according to the epistle, often quoted this text. It seemed to him that, since he had been deprived of his wife, he served the Lord more faithfully than ever by devotion to these projects. The imperial councillor's very manifest impatience and desire to get away from him in no way abashed Karenin, but he stopped a moment as a prince of the imperial family was passing, and his victim seized his opportunity to escape. Left to himself, Alexey Alexandrovitch bowed his head, tried to collect his thoughts, and, with an absent-minded glance about him, stepped toward the door, hoping to meet the countess there. "'How strong and healthy they look physically,' he said to himself, as he looked at the vigorous neck of the prince, who wore a close-fitting uniform, and the handsome chamberlain, with his well-combed and perfumed side-whiskers. "'It is only too true that all is evil in this world,' he thought, as he looked at the chamberlain's sturdy legs. Moving slowly along, Alexey Alexandrovitch, with his customary appearance of weariness and dignity, came up to the gentleman who had been talking about him, and glancing through the door, he looked for the Countess Lydia Ivanovna. "'Ah!' "'Alexey Alexandrovitch!' cried the little old man, with a wicked light growing in his eyes, as Karenin passed him with a cold bow. "'I have not yet congratulated you,' and he pointed to the newly received ribbon. "'I thank you. This is a fine day,' replied Alexey Alexandrovitch, accenting the adjective, procrasny, as was his habit. He knew that these gentlemen were making sport of him, but he expected nothing but hostile feelings, and he was accustomed to it. Catching the sight of the countess's yellow shoulders rising from her corsage as she appeared at the door, and her beautiful pensive eyes inviting him to join her, Alexey Alexandrovitch, with the smile which showed his even white teeth, went to her. Lydia Ivanovna's toilet had cost her much labor, like all her recent efforts in this direction, 
for the object of her toilet was now entirely the reverse of that which she had followed thirty years before. Formerly she had thought only of adorning herself, and the more the better. Now, on the contrary, she had to be adorned so unsuitably for her figure and her years that she simply endeavoured to render the contrast between her person and her toilet not too frightful, and in Alexey Alexandrovitch's eyes she succeeded. He thought her fascinating. For him she, with the friendliness and even love for him, was the only island amid the sea of animosity and ridicule that surrounded him. As he was the gauntlet of scornful glances, he was naturally drawn to her loving eyes like a plant toward the light. "'I congratulate you,' she said, looking at his decoration. Repressing a smile of satisfaction, Karenin shrugged his shoulders and half-closed his eyes, as if to say that this was nothing to him. The Countess Lydia Ivanovna knew well that these distinctions, even though he would not confess it, caused him the keenest pleasure. "'How is our angel?' she said, referring to Sorosa. "'I cannot say that I am very well satisfied with him,' replied Alexey Alexandrovitch, lifting his eyebrows and opening his eyes. "'And Sitnikov,' a pedagogue who had been entrusted with Sorosa's childish education, does not please him. As I told you, I find in him a certain apathy toward the chief questions which ought to move the soul of every man and of every child. And Alexey Alexandrovitch began to discourse on a subject which, next to the question of administration, gave him the most concern, his son's education. When Alexey Alexandrovitch, with Lydia Ivanovna's aid, once more resumed his ordinary life and activity again, he felt it his duty to occupy himself with the education of the son who had been left on his hands. Having never before taken any practical interest in the question of education, Alexey Alexandrovitch consecrated some time to the practical study of the subject. After having read various works on anthropology, pedagogy, and didactics, he conceived a plan of education which the best tutor in Petersburg was then entrusted to put into practice, and this work constantly occupied him. Yes, but his heart. I find in this child his father's heart, and with such a heart he cannot be bad, said the countess with enthusiasm. Well, that may be. So far as in me lies, I perform my duty. It is all I can do. Will you come to my house? asked the countess Lydia Ivanovna, after a moment's silence. I have a very painful matter to talk with you about. I would have given the world to spare you certain memories. Others do not think the same. I had a letter from her— she is here in Petersburg. Alexey Alexandrovitch quivered at the recollection of his wife, but his face instantly assumed that expression of corpse-like immobility that showed how absolutely unable he was to treat of such a subject. I expected it, he said. The Countess Lydia Ivanovna looked at him with exultation, and in the presence of a soul so great, tears of transport sprang to her eyes. End of chapter 24 Part Five, Chapter Twenty Five of Anna Karenina by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Nathan Haskell Doyle. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Marianne Spiegel. When Alexey entered the Countess Lydia Ivanovna's cosy little boudoir, decorated with portraits and old porcelains, he failed to find his friend. She was changing her gown. On a round table covered with a cloth stood a Chinese tea service and a silver teapot, with an alcohol lamp. Alexey Alexandrovitch glanced perfunctorily at the numberless paintings that adorned the room, 
Then he sat down near a table, and took up a copy of the New Testament, which lay on it. The rustling of the Countess's silk dress put his thoughts to flight. "'Well, now, we can be a little more free from disturbance,' said the Countess, with a smile, gliding between the table and the divan. "'We can talk while drinking our tea.' After several words, meant to prepare his mind, she sighed deeply, and, with a tinge of color in her cheeks, she put Anna's letter into his hands. He read it, and sat long in silence. "'I do not feel that I have the right to refuse her,' he said timidly, raising his eyes. "'My friend, you can never see evil anywhere.' "'On the contrary, I see everything as evil. But would it be fair to—' His face expressed indecision, desire for advice, for support, for guidance— in a question so beyond his comprehension. No, interrupted the Countess Lydia Ivanovna, there are limits to things. I understand immorality, she said, not with absolute sincerity, since she did not know what could induce women to be immoral. But what I do not understand is cruelty toward anyone, toward you. How can she remain in the same city with you? One is never too old to learn, and I learn every day your grandeur and her baseness. "'Who shall cast the first stone?' asked Alexey Alexandrovitch, evidently satisfied with the part he was playing. "'I have forgiven her for everything, and therefore I cannot deprive her of what is in need of her heart, her love for her son.' "'But is it love, my friend? Is it sincere? Let us agree that you have forgiven her, and that you still pardon her. But have we the right to vex the soul of this little angel? He believes that she is dead.' He prays for her, and asks God to pardon her sins. It is better so. What would he think now? I had not thought of that, said Alexey Alexandrovitch, perceiving the justice of her words. The countess covered her face with her hands and was silent. She was praying. If you ask my advice, she replied, after she had uttered her prayer and taken her hands from her face, you will do this. Do I not see how you suffer? how this opens all your wounds. But let us admit that you, as always, forget yourself. But where will it lead you? New sufferings for yourself, to torture for the child. If she were still capable of human feelings, she herself could not desire this. No, I have no hesitation about it. I advise you not to, and, if you give me your authority, I will reply to her. Alexey Alexandrovitch consented, and the countess wrote in French this letter. Chère madame, recalling your existence to your son would be likely to raise questions which it would be impossible to answer without obliging the child to criticize that which should remain sacred to him, and therefore I beg you to interpret your husband's refusal in the spirit of Christian charity. I pray the Omnipotent to be merciful to you. Comtesse Lydia this letter accomplished the secret aim which the countess would not confess even to herself. It wounded Anna to the bottom of her soul. Alexey Alexandrovitch, on returning home from Lydia Ivanovna's, found himself unable to take up his ordinary occupations, or recover the spiritual calm of a believer who feels that he is among the elect. The thought of his wife who had been so guilty toward him, and toward whom he had acted so like a saint, as the Countess Lydia Ivanovna had so well expressed it, ought not to have disturbed him, and yet he was ill at ease. He could not understand a word of the book he was reading, 
he could not drive away from his mind the cruel recollections of his relations to her, of the mistakes which, as it now seemed to him, he himself had made in his treatment of her. He remembered with a feeling like remorse the way he had received Anna's confession that day, when they were returning from the races. Why had he demanded merely an outward observance of the proprieties? Why had he not challenged Vronsky to a duel? He was likewise tormented by his recollection of the letter which he wrote her at that time, especially his forgiveness of her, which had proved useless to anyone, and the pains which he had wasted on the baby that was not his, all came back to his memory and seared his heart with shame and regret. And exactly the same feeling of shame and regret she experienced now in reviewing all his past with her, and remembering the awkward way in which, after long vacillating, he had offered himself to her. "'But how am I at fault?' he asked himself, and this question immediately gave rise to another. "'Do other men feel differently? Fall in love differently? And marry differently? These Vronskys, Oblonskys, these Chamberlains with their handsome calves. His imagination called up a whole line of these vigorous men, self-confident and strong, who had always and everywhere attracted his curiosity and his wonder. He drove away these thoughts. He strove to persuade himself that the end and aim of his life was not this world, but eternity, that peace and charity alone ought to dwell in his soul. But the fact that in this temporal, insignificant life he had, as it seemed to him, made some humiliating blunders, tortured him as much as if that eternal salvation in which he put his trust did not exist. But this temptation was not long, and soon Alexey Alexandrovitch regained that serenity and elevation of mind by which he succeeded in putting away all that he wished to forget. End of chapter 25「Anna Karenina」by Leo Tolstoy Translated by Nathan Haskell Doyle This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Marianne Spiegel "'Well, Kapitanuitch,' said Sir Rosa, as he came in, rosy and gay, after his walk, on the evening before his birthday, while the old Swiss, smiling down from his superior height, helped the young man off with his coat. "'Did the bandaged Chinovchik come to-day?' Did Papa see him? Yes. The manager had only just got here when I announced him, replied the Swiss, winking one eye gaily. Permit me, I will take it. Sorosa, Sorosa, cried the Savafal tutor, who was standing by the door that led to the inner rooms. Take off your coat by yourself. But Sorosa, though he heard his tutor's weak voice, paid no heed to him. Standing by the Swiss, he held him by the belt, and looked him straight in the face. "'And did Papa do what he wanted?' the Swiss nodded. This Chinovnik, with his head in a bandage, who had come seven times to ask some favour of Alexey Alexandrovitch, interested Sir Rosa and the Swiss. Sir Rosa had met him one day in the vestibule, and overheard how he begged the Swiss to let him be admitted, saying that nothing was left for him and his children but to die.' Since that time the lad had felt great concern for the poor man. "'Say, did he seem very glad?' asked Sorosa. "'Glad as he could be. He went off almost leaping.' "'Has anything come?' asked Sorosa, after a moment's silence. "'Well, sir,' whispered the Swiss, shaking his head, "'there is something from the Countess.' 
Sir Rosa instantly understood that what the Swiss meant was a birthday present from the Countess Lydia Ivanovna. "'What is it? Where is it?' "'Cornai took it to Papa. It must be some beautiful toy.' "'How big? As big as this?' "'Smaller, but beautiful. A little book?' "'No, a toy. Run away, run away. Vasily Lukitch is calling you,' said the Swiss, hearing the tutor's steps approach and gently removing the little gloved hand which held his belt. "'In a bit of a moment, Vasily Lukitch,' said Sir Rosa, with the amiable and gracious smile to whose influence even the stern tutor submitted. Sir Rosa was in radiant spirits, and wanted to tell his friend, the Swiss, about a piece of good fortune which the Countess Lydia Ivanovna's niece had told him, while they were walking in the summer garden, had befallen the family.' His happiness seemed greater still since he heard about the Chinovnik's success and his present. It seemed to Sir Rosa that everyone ought to be happy this beautiful day. "'Do you know, Papa has received the Alexander Nevsky order?' "'Why shouldn't I know? He has been receiving congratulations.' "'Is he glad?' "'How could he help being glad of the Tsar's favor? "'Of course he deserves it,' said the old Swiss, gravely." Sir Rosa reflected as he looked into the Swiss's face, which he knew even to the least detail, but especially the chin between his grey side-whiskers. No one had seen his chin except Sir Rosa, who looked up at it from below. "'Well, and your daughter? Isn't it a long time since she has been to see us?' The Swiss's daughter was a ballet dancer. "'How could she find time to come on work-days?' he exclaimed. "'They have their lessons as well as you.' and you had better be off to yours, sir. When Sir Rosa reached his room, instead of attending to his tasks, he poured out into the tutor's ears all his surmises about the present which had been brought him. It must be a locomotive engine. What do you think about it? he asked. But Vasily Lukitch was thinking of nothing except the grammar lesson, which had to be ready for the professor, who came at two o'clock. No, but you must just tell me one thing, Vasily Lukitch, asked the child, who was now sitting at his desk with his book in his hands. What is there higher than the Alexander Nevsky? You know that Papa has just received the Alexander Nevsky. Vasily Lukitch replied that the order of Vladimir was higher. And above that? St. Andrew above them all. And above that? I don't know. Why don't you know? And Sir Rosa, leaning his head on his hand, began to think. The child's thoughts were very varied and complicated. He imagined that his father perhaps was going to have the orders of Vladimir and St. Andrew, and that therefore he would be the more indulgent for that day's lessons, and that he himself, when he grew up, would do his best to deserve all the decorations, even those that would be given higher than that of St. Andrew. A new order would scarcely have time to be founded before he would make himself worthy of it. These thoughts made the time pass so quickly that, when the professor came, his lesson about the circumstances of time and place and mode of action was not prepared at all, and the professor seemed not only dissatisfied, but distressed. His professor's distress touched Sir Rosa. He felt that he was to blame for not having learned his lesson. In spite of all his efforts, he really had been unable to do it. When the professor was talking to him, he imagined that he understood, but when he was alone, he really could not remember or comprehend that such a short and easy word as drug, suddenly, is a circumstance of the mode of action. 
but still he was sorry that he had tried his teacher. He seized on a moment when his teacher was silently looking into a book to ask him, Mikhail Ivanovnitch, when will your birthday be? You would better to think about your work. Birthdays have no importance for a reasonable being. It is only a day, just like any other, and must be spent in work. Sir Rosa looked attentively at his teacher, studied his sparse beard, his eyeglasses far down on his nose, and got into such a deep brown study that he heard nothing of what the teacher was explaining to him. He had a dim comprehension that his teacher did not believe what he said. By the tone in which he said it, he felt that it was incredible. "'But why do they all try to say to me the most tiresome things, and the most useless things, and all in the same way? Why does this man keep me from him, and not love me?' he asked himself sadly, and he could not discover any answer. End of chapter 26「Anna Karenina」by Leo Tolstoy Translated by Nathan Haskell Doyle This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Marianne Spiegel After the professor came the lesson with his father. Sir Rosa, while waiting for him, sat at the table, playing with his penknife, and he fell into new thoughts. One of his favorite occupations was to look for his mother while he was out walking. He did not believe in death as a general thing, and especially he did not believe that his mother was dead, in spite of what the Countess Lydia Ivanovna told him, and though his father confirmed it. And therefore, after they told him that she was dead, he used to watch for her while he was out for his walk. Every tall, graceful woman with dark hair he imagined to be his mother. At the sight of such a woman, his heart would swell with love, the tears would come into his eyes, and he would wait until the lady drew near him, and raised her veil. Then he would see her face. She would kiss him, smile upon him, he would feel the sweet caress of her hand, smell the well-known perfume, and weep with joy, as he did one evening when he lay at her feet, and she tickled him, and he laughed so heartily, and gently bit her white hand, covered with rings. Later, when he learned accidentally from the old nurse that his mother was alive, and that his father and the countess had told him that she was dead because she was a wicked woman, this seemed still more impossible to Sir Rosa, because he loved her, and he looked for her, and longed for her. That very day, in the summer garden, there had been a lady in a lilac veil, and, with his heart beating violently, expecting that it was she, he saw her take the same footpath where he was walking. But this lady did not come up to where he was, and she disappeared from sight. Sarosa felt a stronger love than ever for his mother, and now, while waiting for his father, he was cutting his desk with his penknife. With shining eyes he was looking straight ahead and thinking of her. "'Here comes your papa,' said Vasily Lukitch. Sarosa jumped up from the chair, ran to kiss his father's hand, and looked for some sign of pleasure because he had received the order of Alexander Nevsky. "'Did you have a good walk?' asked Alexey Alexandrovitch as he sat down in an armchair, taking up the Old Testament and opening it. Though he had often told Sarosa that every Christian ought to know the sacred history by heart, he had often to consult the Old Testament for his lessons, and Sarosa noticed it. "'Yes, Papa, I enjoyed it very much,' said Sarosa, sitting across his chair and tipping it, which was forbidden. "'I saw Nadenka.' 
Nadenka was the countess's niece, whom she adopted. And she told me that they've given you a new star. Are you glad, papa? In the first place, please don't tip your chair so, said Alexey Alexandrovitch. And in the second place, know that what ought to be dear to us is work for itself, and not the reward. I want you to understand that. If you work and study simply for the sake of receiving the recompense, the work will seem painful. But if you love work, your recompense will come of itself. And Alexey Alexandrovitch remembered that on this very day he had signed one hundred and eighteen different papers, with no other support in a most unwelcome task than the feeling of duty. Sirosa's eyes, shining with affection and merriment, grew gloomy and dropped as his father looked at him. It was the same well-remembered way his father had adopted in his treatment of him, and Sirosa had already schooled himself to be hypocritical toward it. He felt that his father always spoke as if he were addressing some imaginary boy, one of those children found in books, and not in the least like Sirosa. And Sirosa, when he was with his father, tried to make believe that he was that bookish little boy. "'You understand this, I hope?' "'Yes, Papa,' replied the lad, playing the part of this imaginary little boy. The lesson consisted of the recitation of several verses of the Gospel, and the review of the first part of the Old Testament. The verses from the Gospel Sirosa knew fairly well, but, as he was in the midst of so repeating them, Sirosa was struck by the appearance of his father's forehead, which made almost a right angle near the temples, and he stumbled and transferred the end of one verse to the next verse, which began with the same word. Alexey Alexandrovitch concluded that he did not understand the meaning of what he was reciting, and he was vexed. He frowned, and began to explain what Sirosa had heard so many times that he could not help remembering, because he understood it too well, just as it was with the concept of the word verdrung, suddenly, being a circumstance of the mode of action. The child, with scared eyes, looked at his father and thought about only one thing. Would his father oblige him to repeat the explanation that he had given him, as he had done at other times? This fear kept him from understanding anything. Fortunately, his father passed on to the lesson in sacred history. Sirosa narrated the facts themselves very well, but when he was required to answer the question as to what the fact signified, he did not know it at all, though he had already been punished for this same lesson. The place where he could not recite and hesitated, and where he had whittled the table and rocked the chair, was the critical moment when he had to repeat the list of antediluvian patriarchs. Not one could he remember, not even Enoch, who was snatched up to heaven alive. On other occasions he could remember his name, but now he had entirely forgotten it, for the very reason that Enoch was his favorite character in all biblical history, and he connected with the translation of this patriarch a long string of ideas which completely absorbed him, while he was staring at his father's watch-chain and a loose button on his waistcoat. Sirosa absolutely disbelieved in death, though they had told him about it many times, he could not believe that those whom he loved could die, and especially incredible was the thought of his own death. It all seemed perfectly impossible and incomprehensible. But he had been told that all must die. He had asked people in whom he had confidence, and they had assured him that it was so. The nurse herself, though unwillingly, said the same thing. But Enoch did not die, and perhaps others might not have to die. Why should not others deserve justice before God? and so be snatched up to heaven alive, thought Sirosa. The wicked, 
those whom he disliked, might have to die, but the good might be like Enoch. Well, how about these patriarchs? Enoch? Enos? You have already mentioned him. This is bad, Sir Rosa, very bad. If you do not endeavor to learn the things essential for every Christian to know, what will become of you? asked his father, getting up. I am dissatisfied with you. And Pyotr Ignatyevich, he was the professor, is dissatisfied with you, so I am compelled to punish you. Father and Pedagogu both found fault with him, and Sir Rosa was doubtless making bad work of it. Yet it could not possibly be said that he was a stupid boy. On the contrary, he was far superior to those whom his teacher held up to him as examples. From his father's point of view, he did not want to learn what was taught him. In reality, it was because he could not learn it. He could not for the reason that his mind had needs more essential to him than those that his father and the pedagogue supposed. These needs were wholly opposed to what they gave him, and he revolted against his teachers. He was only nine years old. He was only a child. But he knew his own soul. It was dear to him. He guarded it jealously, as the eyelid guards the eye. And no one should force a way in without the key of love. His teachers blamed him for being unwilling to learn, and yet he was all on fire with the yearning for knowledge. And he learned from Kapitanuitch, his old nurse, Nadenka, and Vasily Lukitch, but not from his teachers. The water which the father and the pedagogue poured into the mill-wheel was wasted, but the work was done in another place. His father punished Sarosa by not letting him go to see Nadenka, but his punishment turned out to be an advantage. Vasily Lukitch was in good humor and taught him how to make windmills. The whole afternoon was spent in working and thinking of ways and means to make the mill go. Should he fix wings to it? or arrange it so he could turn it himself. He forgot about his mother all the evening, but after he had got to bed he suddenly remembered her, and he prayed in his own fashion that she might cease to hide herself from him and make him a visit the next day, which was his birthday. Vasily Lukitch, do you know what I prayed God for? To study better? No. Toys? No. You must not guess. It is a secret. When it comes to pass, I will tell you. Can't you guess? No, I can't guess. You must tell me, said Vasily Lukitch, smiling, which was rare with him. Well, get into bed. I'm going to put out the light. I see that which I prayed for much better when there isn't any light. There, I almost told my secret, cried Sir Rosa, laughing gaily. Sir Rosa believed that he heard his mother and felt her presence when he was in the dark. She was standing near him and looking at him tenderly with her loving eyes. Then he saw a mill, a knife, then all melted into darkness, and he was asleep. End of chapter 27 Part 5, Chapter 28 of Anna Karenina by Leo Tolstoy Translated by Nathan Haskell Doyle This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Marianne Spiegel. When Vronsky and Anna reached Petersburg, they stopped at one of the best hotels. Vronsky had a room to himself on the ground floor, Anna up one flight of stairs, with her baby, the nurse, and her maid, occupied a suite of four rooms. On the day of his return, Vronsky went to see his brother. He there found his mother, who had come down from Moscow on business. 
His mother and sister-in-law received him as usual, asked him about his travels, spoke of common friends, but not by a word did they make any allusion to Anna. His brother, however, who returned his call the next morning, asked him about her and Alexey. Vronsky declared in no equivocal terms that he considered the bond which united him to Madame Karenin the same as marriage, that he hoped a divorce would be obtained, and then he should marry her, but till that time he should regard her the same as his wife, and he asked him to explain this to his mother and sister-in-law. "'The world may not approve of me. That is all one to me,' he added. "'But if my family wish to remain on good terms with me, they must show proper respect for my wife.' The elder brother, always very respectful of his brother's opinions, was not very certain in his own mind whether he was doing right or not, and resolved to let society settle this question. But, as far as he himself was concerned, he saw nothing objectionable in this, and he went with Alexey to call on Anna. Vronsky spoke to Anna with the formal vous, you, as he always did before strangers, and treated her as a mere acquaintance, but it was perfectly understood that the brother knew of their relations, and they spoke freely of Anna's visit to Vronsky's estate. Notwithstanding his experience in society, Vronsky, in consequence of this new state of things, fell into a strange error. It would seem as if he ought to have understood that society would shut its doors on him and Anna, but now he persuaded himself by a strange freak of imagination that, however it might have been in former days, now, owing to the rapid progress made by society, and he had himself unconsciously become a strong supporter of progress, prejudices would have melted away, and the question whether they would be received by society would not trouble them. Of course, she would not be received at court, he thought, but our relatives, our friends, will understand things as they are. A man may sit for some time with his legs doubled up in one position, provided he knows that he can change it at pleasure. But if he knows that he must sit in such a constrained position, then he will feel cramped, and his legs will twitch and stretch out toward the desired freedom. Vronsky experienced this in regard to society. Though he knew in the bottom of his soul that society was closed to them, he made experiment whether it had changed and whether it would receive them. But he quickly found that, even if it were open to him personally, it was closed to Anna. As in the game of cat and mouse, the hands raised for him immediately fell before Anna. One of the first ladies of Petersburg society whom he met was his cousin Betsy. "'At last!' she cried joyously. "'And Anna, how glad I am! Where are you stopping? I can easily imagine the hideous effect our Petersburg must have on you after such a charming journey.' and I can imagine your honeymoon in Rome. And the divorce? Is it arranged? Vronsky saw that Betsy's enthusiasm cooled when she learned that there was no divorce as yet. I know well that I shall be stoned, said she, but I am coming to see Anna. Yes, I will certainly come. You won't stay here long, I imagine. In fact, she called on Anna that very day, but her manner was entirely different from what it used to be, she evidently prided herself on her courage, and wanted Anna to appreciate the genuineness of her friendship. After talking for about ten minutes on the news of the day, she got up, and said as she went away, "'You have not told me yet when the divorce is to be. Though I may disregard the proprieties, stiff-necked people will give you the cold shoulder, as long as you are not married. And it is so easy nowadays. C'est sa fête. 
Are you going Friday? I'm sorry we shall not see each other again. From Betsy's manner Vronsky might have got an idea of what he might expect from society, but he made still another experiment in his own family. He had no hope of any assistance from his mother. He knew well that, enthusiastic though she had been in honest praise at their first meeting, she would be relentless toward her now that she had spoiled her son's career. But Vronsky founded great hopes on Varya, his brother's wife. It seemed to him that she would not be one to cast a stone at Anna, but would come simply and naturally to see her. On the next day he called on her, and, finding her alone, he openly expressed his desire. "'You know, Alexey, how fond I am of you,' replied Varya, after hearing what he had to say, "'and how willing I am to do anything for you. But if I kept silent, it is because I know that I cannot be of the least use to you and Anna Arkadyevna.' She took special pains to use the two names. "'Please don't think that I judge her. Not at all. Perhaps I should have done the same thing in her place.' I cannot enter into details, she added, glancing timidly up at his clouded face. But we must call things by their right name. You would like me to go and see her, and then have her visit me, in order to restore her to society. But you must know, I cannot do it. My daughters are growing up. I am obliged, on my husband's account, to go into society. Now, I will go and call on Anna Arkadyevna, but she knows that I cannot invite her here, lest she should meet in my drawing-room people who do not think as I do, and that would wound her. I cannot receive her. But I do not admit that she has fallen lower than hundreds of women whom you receive, interrupted Vronsky, rising and seeing that his sister-in-law's decision was irrevocable. Alexey, don't be angry with me. Please understand. It is not my fault, said Varya, looking at him with a timid smile. I am not angry with you, but I suffer doubly, said he, growing more and more gloomy. I suffer because this breaks our friendship, or, at least, seriously impairs it, for you must know that for me this could not be otherwise. He left her with these words. Vronsky understood that further experiments would be idle, and that, during the few days he would still have to spend in Petersburg, he must act as if he were in a foreign city avoiding all dealings with his society friends, so as not to be subjected to vexations and affronts which were so painful to him. One of the most unpleasant features of his position in Petersburg was the fact that Alexey Alexandrovitch and his name seemed to be everywhere. It was impossible for a conversation to begin on any subject without turning on Alexey Alexandrovitch. It was impossible to go anywhere without meeting him. So at least it seemed to Vronsky just as it seems to a man with a sore finger, that he is always hitting it against everything. Their stay in Petersburg seemed to Vronsky still more trying, because all the time he saw that Anna was in a strange, incomprehensible moral frame of mind, such as he had never seen before. At one time she was more than usually affectionate. Then again she would seem cold, irritable, and enigmatical. Something was tormenting her, and she was concealing something from him and she seemed not to notice the indignities which poisoned his life, and which, in her delicacy of perception, should have been even more painful for her. End of chapter 28
Translated by Nathan Haskell Doyle. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Marianne Spiegel. Anna's chief desire on her return to Russia was to see her son. From the day she left Italy, the thought of seeing him again kept her in a constant state of excitement, and in proportion as she drew near Petersburg, the prospective delight and importance of this meeting kept growing greater and greater. She did not trouble herself with the question how she should manage it. It would be a simple and natural thing, she thought, to see her son once more, when she would be in the same town with him. But since her arrival, she suddenly realized her present relation toward society, and found that the interview was not easy to obtain. She had been two days now in Petersburg, and never for an instant had the thought of her son left her, but she had not seen him. She felt that she had no right to go straight to her former home and risk coming face to face with Alexey Alexandrovitch. She might not be admitted. She might be insulted. To write to her husband and ask permission of him seemed to her painful even to think of. She could be calm only when she did not think of her husband. To see her son when he was out taking his walk, even if she could find where and when he went, was too little for her. She had counted so much on seeing him again. She had so much to say to him. She had such a desire to hug him, to kiss him. Sir Rosa's old nurse might have been an assistance to her, and shown her how to manage, but she was no longer living in Alexey Alexandrovitch's house. On the third day, having learned of Alexey Alexandrovitch's intimate relations with the Countess Lydia Ivanovna, Anna decided to write her a letter, and this cost her the greatest pains to write. She told her frankly that permission to see her son depended on Alexey Alexandrovitch's magnanimity. She knew that if the letter were shown to her husband, he, in his part of magnanimous man, would not refuse her. The messenger that carried the letter brought back the most cruel and unexpected reply, that there was no answer. She had never felt so wounded as at the moment when, summoning the messenger, she heard from him the circumstantial story of how he had waited, and how, after a time, he had been told that there would be no answer. Anna felt humiliated, insulted, but she saw that, from her point of view, the countess was right. Her grief was all the keener, because she had to bear it alone. She could not, and did not, wish to confide it to Vronsky. She knew that though he was the chief cause of her unhappiness, he would regard her meeting with her son as of little account. She knew that he would never be able to sound all the depths of her anguish. She knew that she should hate him for the unsympathetic tone in which he would speak of it, and she feared this more than anything else in the world, and so hid from him her action in regard to her son. She stayed at home all day long, and racked her brain to think of other ways of meeting her son, and finally she decided to write directly to her husband. She had already begun her letter when Lydia Ivanovna's reply was brought to her. The countess's previous silence had humbled and affronted her, but the note, and all she read between the lines, so exasperated her this bitterness against her seemed so shocking when contrasted with her passionate, legitimate affection for her son, that she grew indignant against the others, and ceased to blame herself. "'What cruelty! What hypocrisy!' she said to herself. "'All they want is to insult me and torment the child. I will not let them do so. She is worse than I am. At least I do not lie.' She immediately decided to go on the morrow, which was Sir Rosa's birthday, directly to her husband's house. She would bribe the servants, 
and would make any kind of an excuse, if only she might once see her son and put an end to the ugly network of lies with which they were surrounding the innocent child. She went to a toy shop and purchased some toys, and thus she formed her plan of action. She would start early in the morning, at eight o'clock, before Alexey Alexandrovitch would probably be up. She would have the money in her hand all ready to bribe the Swiss and the valet to let her go upstairs without raising her veil, under the pretext of laying on Sir Rose's bed some presents sent by his godfather. As to what she should say to her son, she could not form the least idea. She could not make any preparation for that. The next morning, at eight o'clock, Anna got out of her hired carriage and rang the doorbell of her former home. "'Go and see what is wanted. It's some lady,' said Kapitonich, in loose coat and galoshes, as he looked out of the window and saw a lady closely veiled, standing on the porch. The Swiss's assistant, a young man whom Anna did not know, had scarcely opened the door before Anna pushed her way in, and, drawing a three-ruble note out of her muff, thrust it into his hand. "'Sir Rosa, Sergey Alexievich,' she stammered, and started down the vestibule. The Swiss's assistant examined the note, and stopped the visitor at the inner glass door. "'Whom do you wish to see?' he asked. She did not hear his words, and made no reply. Kapitanuitch, noticing the stranger's confusion, came out, led her into the entry, and asked her what she wanted. "'I come from Prince Skorodumov, to see Sergei Alexievich.' "'He is not up yet,' replied the Swiss, looking sharply at her. Anna never dreamed that the absolutely unchanged appearance of the anteroom of the house— which for nine years had been her home, could have such a powerful effect on her. One after another, sweet and painful memories arose in her mind, and for a moment she forgot why she was there. "'Will you wait?' asked the Swiss, helping her to remove her shubka. When he saw her face, he recognized her, and without a word bowed profoundly. "'Will your ladyship be pleased to enter?' he said to her. She tried to speak, but her voice refused to utter a sound. Giving the old servant an entreating look, with light, swift steps, she went to the staircase. She flew up the stairs. Kapitonuitch tried to overtake her, and followed after her, catching his galoshes at every step. "'His tutor is here. Perhaps he is not dressed yet. I will speak to him.' Anna kept on up the stairs which she knew so well, not heeding what the old man said. "'This way. To the left, if you please. Excuse it if it is all disorder.' "'He sleeps in the front room now,' said the Swiss, out of breath. "'Will your ladyship be good enough to wait a moment? I will go and see.' And, opening the high door, he disappeared. Anna stopped and waited. "'He has just waked up,' said the Swiss, coming back through the same door. And as he spoke, Anna heard the sound of a child yawning, and merely by the sound of the yawn she recognized her son, and seemed to see him alive before her. "'Let me go in. Let me—' she cried, and hurriedly pushed through the door. At the right of the door stood the bed, and on the bed a child was sitting up in his little open nightgown. His little body was leaning forward, and he was just finishing a yawn and stretching himself. His lips were just closing into a sleepy smile, and, with this smile, he slowly and gently fell back on his pillow. "'Sarosa,' she whispered, as she went noiselessly toward him, at the time of their separation, and during that access of love which she had been recently experiencing for him, Anna had imagined him as still a boy of four, the age when he had been the most charming. 
Now he no longer bore any resemblance to him whom she had left. He was still further removed from the four-year-old ideal. He had grown taller and thinner. How long his face seemed! How short his hair! What long arms! How he had changed since she had seen him last! But it was still Sorosa. The shape of his head, his lips, his little slender neck, his broad little shoulders. Sorosa, she whispered in the child's ear. He raised himself on his elbow, turned his disheveled head first to this side, then to that, as if searching for something, and opened his eyes. For several seconds he looked with an inquiring face at his mother, who stood motionless before him. Then he suddenly smiled with joy, and again closing his sleepy eyes, he threw himself not back on his pillow, but into his mother's arms. Sorosa, my dear little boy, she cried, choking with tears and throwing her arms around his plump body. Mama, he whispered, cuddling into his mother's arms so as to feel their encircling pressure. Smiling sleepily, still with his eyes closed, he took his chubby little hands from the head of the bed and put them on his mother's shoulder and climbed into her lap, having that warm breath of sleep peculiar to children, and pressed his face to his mother's neck and shoulders. I knew, he said, opening his eyes, Today is my birthday. I knew that you would come. I am going to get up now. And as he spoke, he fell asleep again. Anna devoured him with her eyes. She saw how he had grown and changed during her absence. She knew, and yet she did not know, his bare legs, so much longer now, coming below his nightgown. She recognized his cheeks grown thin, his short hair curled in the neck where she had often kissed it. She could not keep her hands from him and not a word she was able to say, and the tears choked her. "'What are you crying for, Mamma? he asked, now entirely awake. "'What makes you cry?' he repeated, ready to weep himself. "'I will not cry any more. I am crying for joy. It is so long since I have seen you. But I will not. I will not cry any more,' she said, drying her tears and turning around. "'Now go and get dressed,' she added, after she had grown a little calmer, but still holding Sir Rosa's hand. She sat down near the bed on a chair which held the child's clothing. How do you dress without me? How— She wanted to speak simply and gaily, but she could not, and again she turned her head away. I do not wash in cold water any more. Papa has forbidden it. But you have not seen Vasily Lukitch? Here he comes. But you are sitting on my things. And Sir Rosa laughed heartily. She looked at him and smiled. Mamma, dear heart, darling, he cried, again throwing himself into her arms, as if now for the first time, having seen her smile, he clearly understood what had happened. You don't need it on, said he, taking off her hat. And, as if again recognizing her with her head bare, he began to kiss her again. What do you think of me? Did you believe that I was dead? I never believed it. You believed me alive, my precious. I knew it. I knew it, he replied, repeating his favorite phrase, and seizing her hand, which was smoothing his hair, he pressed the palm of it to his little mouth and began to kiss it. End of chapter 29
but learning from their conversation that it was Sir Rosa's mother, the woman who had deserted her husband, and whom he did not know, as he had not come into the house till after her departure, was in great perplexity. Ought he go to his pupil, or should he tell Alexey Alexandrovitch? On mature reflection he came to the conclusion that his duty consisted in going to dress Sir Rosa at the usual hour, without paying any attention to a third person, his mother or anyone else. So he dressed himself. But as he reached the door and opened it, the sight of the caress between the mother and child, the sound of their voices and their words, made him change his mind. He shook his head, sighed, and quietly closed the door. "'I will wait ten minutes longer,' he said to himself, coughing slightly and wiping his eyes. There was great excitement among the servants. They all knew that the Bryunia had come, and that Kapitonuitch had let her in, and that she was in the child's room. They knew, too, that their master was in the habit of going to Sir Rosa every morning at nine o'clock. Each one felt that the husband and wife ought not to meet, that it must be prevented. Cornai, the valet, went down to the Swiss to ask why Anna had been let in, and, finding that Kapitonuitch had taken her upstairs, he reprimanded him severely. The Swiss maintained an obstinate silence, till the valet declared that he deserved to lose his place, when the old man jumped at him, and, shaking his fist in his face, said, "'What is that? You would not let her in? You've served here ten years, and had nothing but kindness from her, but you would have said, "'No, go away from here.' You know what policy is, you sly dog. What you don't forget is to rob your master and carry off his raccoonskin shubas. Soldier, replied Cornai, scornfully, and as he turned toward the nurse who was coming in just at this moment, What do you think, Marya Yefimovna? He has let in Anna Arkadyevna without saying anything to anybody, and just when Alexey Alexandrovitch, as soon as he is up, will be going to the nursery. What a scrape! "'What a scrape!' said the nurse. "'But, Kornai Vasilyevich, find some way to keep your master, while I run to warn her and get her out of the way. What a scrape!' When the nurse went into the child's room, Sorosa was telling his mother how Nadenka and he had fallen when sliding down a hill of ice, and turned three somersaults. Anna was listening to the sound of her son's voice, looking at his face, watching the play of his features, feeling his little arms, but not hearing a word that he said. She had to go away. She had to leave him. This alone she understood and felt. She had heard Vasily Lukitch's steps, and his little discreet cough, as he came to the door. And now she heard the nurse coming in. But, unable to move or to speak, she remained as fixed as a statue. "'Mistress, darling,' said the nurse, coming up to Anna and kissing her hands and her shoulders, "'God sent this joy for our birthday celebration. You are not changed at all.' "'Ah, oh, nurse, my dear, I did not know that you were in the house,' said Anna, coming to herself. "'I don't live here. I live with my daughter. I came to give my best wishes to Sorosa, Anna Arkadyevna, Galubushka.' The nurse suddenly began to weep, and to kiss Anna's hand. Sorosa, with bright, joyful eyes, and holding his mother with one hand and his nurse with the other, was dancing in his little bare feet on the carpet. His old nurse's tenderness toward his mother was delightful to him. "'Mamma, she often comes to see me, and when she comes—' he began, but he stopped short when he perceived that the nurse whispered something in his mother's ear, and that his mother's face assumed an expression of fear, and something like shame which did not go well with his mother. Anna went to him. 
my precious, she said. She could not say the word, Preshai, farewell, but the expression of her face said it, and he understood. My precious, precious critique, she said, calling him by a pet name which she used when he was a baby. You will not forget me. You... But she could not say another word. Only then she began to think of the words which she wanted to say to him, but now it was impossible to say them. But Sir Rosa understood all that she would have said. He understood that she was unhappy, and that she loved him. He even understood what the nurse whispered in her ear. He heard the words, always at nine o'clock, and he knew that they referred to his father, and that his mother must not meet him. He understood this, but one thing he could not understand. Why did her face express fear and shame? She was not to blame, but she was afraid of him, and seemed ashamed of something. He wanted to ask a question which would have explained this doubt, but he did not dare. He saw that she was in sorrow, and he pitied her. He silently clung close to her, and then he whispered, "'Don't go yet. He will not come for some time.' His mother pushed him away from her a little, in order to see if he understood the meaning of what he had said, and in the frightened expression of his face she perceived that he not only spoke of his father, but seemed to ask her how he ought to think about him. "'Sarosa, my dear,' she said, "'love him. He is better and more upright than I am, and I have been wicked to him. When you have grown up, you will understand.' "'Not better than you,' cried the child, with sobs of despair, and clinging to his mother's shoulders, he squeezed her with all his might till his arms trembled with the exertion. "'My darling, my little one,' exclaimed Anna, and bursting into tears she sobbed like a child, even as he sobbed. At this moment the door opened, and Vasily Lukitch came in. Steps were heard at the other door, and in a frightened whisper he exclaimed, "'He is coming!' and gave Anna her hat. Sir Rosa threw himself on the bed, sobbing, and covered his face with his hands. Anna took them away to kiss yet once again his tear-stained cheeks, and then with quick steps hurried from the room. Alexey Alexandrovitch met her at the door. When he saw her, he stopped and bowed his head. Though she had declared a moment before that he was better and more upright than she, the swift glance that she gave him, taking in his whole person, with all its peculiarities, awoke in her only a feeling of hatred and scorn for him and jealousy on account of her son. She hurriedly lowered her veil, and, quickening her steps, almost ran from the room. She had entirely forgotten in her haste the playthings which she had bought with so much love and sadness, and she took them back with her to the hotel. End of chapter 30《Translated by Nathan Haskell Doyle. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Marianne Spiegel. Eagerly as Anna had desired to see her son again, long as she had thought about it, prepared herself beforehand, she had no idea what an effect the sight of him would have on her. When she got back to her solitary room at the hotel again, she could not for a long time understand why she was there. Yes, all is over. I am alone again she said to herself, and, without taking off her hat, she threw herself into an easy chair which stood near the fireplace, and, fixing her eyes on the bronze clock standing on a table between two windows, she became absorbed in thought. 
The French maid, whom she had brought from abroad with her, came and offered to help her to dress. Anna looked at her with surprise, and replied, "'By and by.' A servant came to announce coffee. "'By and by,' she said. The Italian nurse came in, bringing the little daughter whom she had just dressed, the plump, well-nurtured little one, as always, when she saw her mother, lifted up her bare little arms with the palms down, and, smiling with her toothless little mouth, began to beat the air with her plump little hands like a fish waving its fins, and to pull at the starched tucks of her embroidered skirt. No one could help smiling back, or kissing the little girl, or letting her catch hold of one of her fingers, screaming with delight and jumping. No one could help pressing her lips for a kiss to the little sweet mouth. All this Anna did, and she took her in her arms, trotted her on her knee, and kissed her fresh cheek and bare elbows. But the sight of this child made her feel clearly that the affection which she felt for it was not the same kind of love that she had for Sarosa. Everything about this little girl was lovely, but somehow she did not fill the wants of her heart. In her firstborn, although he was the child of a man whom she did not love, was concentrated all the strength of a love which had not been satisfied. Her daughter, born in the most trying circumstances, had never received the one-hundredth part of the care which she had spent on Sarosa. Moreover, the little girl, as yet, only represented hopes, while Sarosa was almost a man, and a lovely man. He had already begun to struggle with his thoughts and feelings. He loved his mother, understood her, judged her, perhaps, she thought, recalling her son's words and looks, and now she was separated from him forever, morally as well as materially, and she saw no way of remedying the situation. She gave the little one back to her nurse, and sent them away, and opened a locket containing Sir Rosa's picture about the same age as his sister. Then, removing her hat, she took an album in which were photographs of her son at different periods. She wanted to compare them, and she began to take them out of the album. She took all of them out. One was left, the last, the best photograph of him. It represented Sir Rosa astride a chair, in a white frock, a smile on his lips, and a shadow in his eyes, and it was his most characteristic, his best expression. Holding the album in her little deft hands, which to-day moved with extraordinary nervousness, she tried with her slender white fingers to take it from its place, but the photograph stuck, and she could not get at it. There was no paper-cutter on the table, and she took up another photograph at random to push out the card from its place. It was a picture of Vronsky, taken in Rome, with long hair and a round felt hat. "'Ah, there he is,' she said to herself, and as she looked at him, she suddenly remembered that he was the cause of all her present suffering. Not once had she thought of him all the morning, but now suddenly the sight of this manly and noble face, which she knew and loved so well, brought a flood of affection to her heart. Yes, where is he? Why does he leave me alone, a prey to my grief? she asked with bitter reproach, forgetting that she herself had carefully concealed with him everything concerning her son. She sent a message to him, asking him to come to her immediately, and waited, with heavy heart, thinking over the words with which she would tell him all, and the loving expression with which he would try to console her. The servant returned to say that Vronsky had a visitor, but that he would come very soon, and would like to know if she could receive him with Prince Yashvin, who had just arrived in Petersburg. 
he will not come alone and he has not seen me since yesterday at dinner she thought and he does not come so that i can speak with him but he comes with yashvin and suddenly a cruel thought crossed her mind what if he no longer loved her and as she went over in her mind all the incidents of the past few days she found her terrible thought confirmed by them the day before he had not dined with her they did not have the same room now that they were in petersburg and now he was bringing some one with him as if to avoid being alone with her but he must tell me this i must know it if it is true i know what i must do she said to herself wholly unable to imagine what would happen if vronsky's indifference should prove to be true she began to feel that he did not love her any more she imagined herself reduced to despair and in consequence her feelings made her overexcited she rang for her maid and went into her dressing-room and took extreme pains with her dress as if the sight of her toilet and becoming way of dressing her hair would bring back vronsky's love if he had grown indifferent the bell rang before she was ready when she returned to the drawing-room not vronsky but yashvin looked at her vronsky was looking at serosa's picture which she had left lying beside the table and he did not hurry to greet her we are old acquaintances she said to him going toward him and placing her small hand in yashvin's enormous hand he was all confusion and this seemed odd in a man of his gigantic form and decided features we met last year at the races give them to me she said snatching her son's photographs from vronsky who was looking at them while her eyes blazed at him significantly were the races successful this year we saw the races at rome on the corso but i believe you did not like life abroad she added with a fascinating smile i know you and although we seldom meet i know your tastes i am very sorry for that because my tastes are generally bad said yashvin biting the left side of his moustache after they had talked some little time yashvin seeing vronsky look at his watch asked anna if she expected to be in petersburg long then bending down his huge back he picked up his kepi probably not long she replied in some confusion and looked at vronsky then shall we not meet again said yashvin getting up and addressing vronsky where are you going to dine come and dine with me said anna with decision and vexed because she could not conceal her confusion whenever her false situation became evident before a stranger she blushed the table here is not good but you will at least see each other of all alexey's messmates you are his favorite i should be delighted replied yashvin with a smile which proved to vronsky that he was very much pleased with anna yashvin took leave of them and went away while vronsky lingered behind are you going too she asked him i am already late go ahead i will overtake you he shouted to yashvin she took his hand and without removing her eyes from him tried to find something to say to detain him wait i, I want to ask you something and she pressed vronsky's hand against her cheek well did i do wrong to invite him to dinner you did quite right he replied with a calm smile which showed his solid teeth and he kissed her hand alexey do you feel changed toward me she asked pressing his hand between her own alexey i am tired of staying here when shall we go away soon very soon you can't imagine how life here weighs upon me too and he drew away his hand 
"'Well, go, go away,' she said in an injured tone, and quickly left him. End of chapter 31「Anna Karenina」by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Nathan Haskell Doyle. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Marianne Spiegel. When Vronsky came back to the hotel, Anna was not there. They told him that she had gone out with a lady who had come to call on her. The fact that she had gone out without having left word where, a thing which she had not done before, the fact that she had also gone somewhere in the morning without telling him, all this coupled with the strange expression of excitement on her face that morning, the manner and the harsh tone with which she had snatched away her son's photographs from him before Yashvin, made Vronsky wonder. He made up his mind to ask for an explanation, and waited in the drawing-room for her return. Anna did not come back alone. She brought with her an old maiden aunt, the Princess Oblonskaya, she was the lady who had come in the morning, and with whom she had been shopping. Anna pretended not to notice the expression of Vronsky's face and his uneasy, questioning manner, and began to talk gaily about the purchases she had made in the morning. He saw that something unusual was the matter. In her shining eyes, as they flashed their lightning on him, there was evidence of mental strain, and in her speech and movements there was the nervous alertness and grace which in the first epoch of their relationship had so captivated him, but now they troubled and alarmed him. The table was laid for four, and, just as they were going to sit down in the little dining-room, Tuskievich came from the Princess Betsy with a message for Anna. The Princess Betsy sent her excuses for not coming in person to say good-bye to her. She was not well, and asked Anna to come to see her between half-past seven and nine o'clock. Vronsky looked at Anna as if he would draw her attention to the fact that in naming a time she had taken precautions against her meeting anyone, but Anna did not seem to pay any attention to it. "'I am very sorry, but between half-past seven and nine I shall not be at liberty,' she said with a slight smile. "'The princess will be very much disappointed.' "'So shall I.' "'I suppose you are going to hear Patty,' said Tushkievich. "'Patty? You give me an idea.' I would go, certainly, if I could get a loge. I can get you one, suggested Tushkevich. I should be very much obliged to you, said Anna. But won't you dine with us? Vronsky shrugged his shoulders slightly. He did not know what to make of Anna. Why had she brought home the old princess? Why was she keeping Tushkevich to dinner? And, above all, why did she let him get her a box? Was it to be thought of for a moment that she, in her position, could go to the opera on a patty subscription night, when she would meet all her acquaintances there? He looked at her seriously, but she responded with a half-despairing, half-mocking look, the meaning of which he could not understand. All through dinner Anna was aggressively lively, and seemed to flirt both with Tushkevich and Yashvin. When they rose from the table, Tushkevich went to secure a box— but Yashvin was going to smoke, and Vronsky took him down to his own room. After some time Vronsky came upstairs again. Anna was already dressed in a light silk gown bought in Paris. It was trimmed with velvet and had an open front. On her head she wore costly white lace, which set off to advantage the striking beauty of her face. "'Are you really going to the theatre?' he asked, trying to avoid looking at her. 
"'Why do you ask me in such a terrified way?' she replied, again hurt because he did not look at her. "'Why shouldn't I go?' She did not seem to understand the meaning of his words. "'Of course there is no reason for it,' said he, frowning. "'That is exactly what I say,' she replied, not wishing to see the sarcasm of his remark, and calmly putting on a long, perfumed glove. "'Anna, for heaven's sake, what is the matter with you?' he said to her, trying to bring her to her senses, as her husband had more than once done. "'I don't know what you mean.' "'You know very well that you can't go there.' "'Why not? I'm not going alone. The Princess Vervaria has gone to dress. She is going with me.' He shrugged his shoulders with a look of perplexity and despair. "'But don't you know,' he began. "'No! I don't want to know!' she almost shrieked. "'I don't want to know! Am I sorry for anything I have done? No! 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 Indeed! If it were to begin over again, I would begin over again. There is only one thing of any consequence to us, to you and me, and that is, do we love each other?' everything else is of no account. Why do we live separate here and not see each other? Why can't I go where I please? I love you, and everything is right, if your feelings have not changed toward me, she said in Russian, looking at him with a peculiar gleam in her eyes which he could not understand. Why don't you look at me? He looked at her. He saw all her beauty, of her face, of the toilet, which was so becoming to her, but now this beauty and this elegance were precisely what irritated him. You know very well that my feelings cannot change, but I beg you not to go out. I beseech you, he said again in French, with a prayer in his voice, but with a cold look in his eyes. She did not hear his words, but noticed only the coldness of his look, and replied with an injured air. And I, for my part, beg you to explain why I should not go, because it may cause you... He grew confused. I don't understand at all. Yashvin, n'est pas compromettante, and the Princess Vavaria is no worse than anybody else. Ah, here she is. End of chapter 32translated by Nathan Haskell Doyle. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Marianne Spiegel. For the first time in his life, Vronsky felt toward Anna a sensation of vexation bordering on anger, on account of her intentional misunderstanding of her position. This feeling was intensified by the fact that he could not explain the reason of his vexation. If he had frankly said what was in his mind, he would have said, to appear at the opera, in such a toilet, with a notorious person like the princess, is equivalent to throwing down the gauntlet to public opinion, to confessing yourself a lost woman, and, consequently, renouncing all hope of ever going into society again. He could not say that to her. Why did she not understand it? What has happened to her? he asked himself. He felt at one and the same time a lessened esteem for Anna's character and a greater sense of her beauty. With a dark frown he went back to his room and sat down with Yashvin, who, with his long legs stretched out on a chair, was drinking cognac and seltzer water. Vronsky ordered the same for himself. "'You spoke of Lanskov's Moguchi. He is a fine horse, 
and I advise you to buy him, began Yashvin, glancing at his comrade's solemn face. His crupper is tapering, but what legs, and what a head! You couldn't do better. I think I shall take him, replied Vronsky. The talk about horses occupied him, but not for a moment was the thought of Anna absent from his mind, and he involuntarily listened for the sound of steps in the corridor, and kept looking at the clock on the mantel. Anna Arkadyevna left word that she has gone to the theatre, a servant announced. Yashvin poured out another little glass of cognac and seltzer, drank it, and rose, buttoning up his coat. "'Well, shall we go?' said he, half smiling beneath his long moustaches, and showing that he understood the cause of Vronsky's vexation, but did not attach much importance to it. "'I am not going,' replied Vronsky gloomily. "'I promised.' so I must go. Well, das Vidanya, if you should change your mind, take Kronsky's seat, which will be unoccupied, he added as he went out. No, I have some work to do. A man has his trials with a wife, but with your not-wife it is even worse, thought Yashvin as he left the hotel. When Vronsky was alone, he rose and began to walk up and down the room. Yes. Tonight? the fourth subscription night. My brother Igor will be there with his wife, and with my mother, probably. In fact, all Petersburg will be there. Now she is going in, and is taking off her shuba, and there she is in the light. Tushkevich, Yashvin, the Princess Vavara. He pictured the scene to himself. What am I to do? Am I afraid? Or have I given Tushkevich the right to protect her? However you may look at it, it is stupid. It is stupid. Why should she place me in this position? He said, with a gesture of despair. This movement jostled the stand on which stood the seltzer water and the decanter with cognac, and nearly knocked it over. In trying to rescue it, he upset it entirely. He rang and gave a kick to the table. If you want to remain in my service, he said to his valet, who appeared, then tend to your business. Don't let this happen again. Why didn't you take these things away? The valet, knowing his innocence, wished to justify himself, but by one glance at his baron's face he realized that it was best for him to be silent, and, making a hasty excuse, he got down on the floor to pick up the broken glasses and water-bottles. That is not your business. Call a waiter and get my dress-coat. Vronsky entered the theatre at half-past nine. The performance was in full swing. The capeldenier, a little old man, took his fur-lined shuba, and, recognizing him, called him Your Excellency, and assured him that he needed not to take a number, but that all he had to do was to call for Fyodor. There was no one in the lighted lobby except the capeldenier and two valets, with fur garments on their arms, listening at the door. The sound of the orchestra, playing staccato, could be heard, carefully accompanying a woman's voice which was admirably rendering a musical phrase. The door opened, and another capeldenier came tiptoeing out, and the phrase, as it was ending, came distinctly to Vronsky's ear. But instantly the door closed again, and he could not hear the ending of the phrase, or the cadenza, but from the applause that followed he knew that the aria was finished. The plaudits still continued as he went into the auditorium, brilliantly lighted with chandeliers and bronze gas fixtures. On the stage, the prima donna, with bare shoulders and glittering with diamonds, 
was bowing and smiling, and, with the assistance of the tenor, who gave her his hand, was bending forward to receive the bouquets that were thrust awkwardly at her over the footlights, and then she went toward a gentleman whose hair, shining with pomade, was parted in the middle, and who reached out his long arms to hand her some article. The whole audience, those in the boxes and those in the parquet, was wildly excited and leaning forward, shouting and clapping. The Kappelmeister, in his elevated stand, helped to pass it along, and straightened his white necktie. Vronsky went down to the middle of the parquet, and, pausing, looked through the audience. He paid less attention than ever to the familiar stage-setting, to the stage, to the noise, to all that well-known, variegated, and uninteresting throng of spectators that was packed and crowded into the theatre. There were the same ladies in the boxes, with the same officers behind them, the same gaily-dressed women, the same uniforms, and the same dress-coats. In the gallery the same disorderly crowd, and in this closely-packed house, in the boxes and in the front seats, were some forty genuine men and women. And Vronsky immediately turned his attention to this oasis, and occupied himself with it exclusively. The act was just over as Vronsky went toward the first row of seats, and stopped near the railing beside Serpukhovskoye, who, bending his knee and rapping against the rail with his heel, had seen him at a distance, and beckoned him with a smile. Vronsky had not yet seen Anna, and purposefully refrained from looking for her, but from the direction in which people were gazing, he knew where she was. He glanced round furtively, but did not search for her. Expecting something even worse, he looked to see if Alexey Alexandrovitch was there. To his joy, the latter was not at the theatre that evening. "'How unmartial you look!' said Serpukhovskoye. "'One would take you for a diplomat, an artist.' "'Yes, on my return home I put on citizen's dress,' replied Vronsky, slowly taking out his opera-glasses. "'In this respect I confess I envy you. When I return from abroad, I put these on,' said he, touching his epaulets. "'I mourn for my liberty.' Serpukhovskoye had long since given up trying to push Vronsky along in his military career, but he continued to have a warm affection for him, and he now seemed especially friendly toward him. It's too bad that you lost the first act. Vronsky, while listening with one ear, examined the boxes and the first tier of seats with his opera-glass. Suddenly Anna's head came into view, proud and strikingly beautiful, in its frame of laces, next to a lady in a turban, and a bald-headed old man, who blinked as he gazed through his opera-glass. Anna was in the fifth box, not more than twenty steps from him. She was seated in the front of the box, turning slightly away, and was talking with Yashvin. The poise of her head, her neck, her beautiful broad shoulders, the radiance of her eyes and face, all reminded him of her as she had looked that evening at the ball in Moscow. But her beauty inspired him with entirely different sentiment. There was no longer anything mysterious in his feeling for her. And so, although her beauty was more extraordinary than ever, and fascinated him, at the same time it was now offensive to him. She did not look in his direction, but he felt that she had already seen him. When Vronsky again directed his opera-glass toward the box, he saw the Princess Vivara, very red in the face, was laughing unnaturally, and kept looking at the next box. Anna, striking her closed fan on the red velvet, was looking away, evidently not seeing and not intending to see what was going on in the next box. 
Yashvin's face wore the same expression as when he lost at cards. He drew his left moustache more and more into his mouth, frowned, and was looking out of the corner of his eye into the same box. In this box were the Kartasovs. Vronsky knew them, and he knew that Anna, too, had been on friendly terms with them. Madame Kartasov, a little, thin woman, was standing with her back to Anna, and putting on an opera cloak, which her husband handed to her. Her face was pale and angry, and she was saying something with great excitement. Kartasov, a stout, bald-headed man, kept looking at Anna, and trying to calm his wife. When Madame Kartasov left the box, her husband lingered, trying to catch Anna's eye, and evidently desirous of bowing to her. But apparently she purposefully avoided noticing him, and leaned back to speak to Yashvin, whose shaven head was bent toward her. Kartasov went out without having bowed, and the box was left empty. Vronsky did not understand what had just passed between the Kartasovs and Anna, but he felt perfectly sure that something mortifying had happened to Anna. By the expression of her face he saw that she was summoning all her strength to keep up her part to the end, and to appear perfectly calm. And this semblance of external calm was put on to perfection. Those who knew nothing of her history and her circle, who had not heard her old friend's expression of indignation at her appearing in this way, in all the splendor of her beauty and of her toilet, would have admired her serenity and beauty, and never have suspected that this woman was enduring the same feelings of shame as a criminal experiences at the pillory. Knowing that something had taken place, but not knowing exactly what, Vronsky felt a sense of deep anxiety, and, hoping to learn something about the matter, went to his brother's box. He intentionally crossed the parquet, on the side opposite to Anna's box, and, as he went, ran across his former regimental commander, who was talking with two of his acquaintances. Vronsky heard the Karenin's name spoken, and noticed that the regimental commander hastened to call to him aloud, while he gave his friends a significant look. "'Ah, Vronsky, when shall we see you again in the regiment? We shan't let you off without a banquet. You are ours, every inch of you,' said the regimental commander. "'I shan't have the time now. I'm awfully sorry. Another time,' replied Vronsky, going rapidly up the steps which led to his brother's box. The old countess, his mother, with her little steel-colored curls, was in the box. Varya and the young princess Sorokin were walking together in the lobby at the Bel Etage. As soon as she saw her brother-in-law, Varya went back to her mother with her companion and then, taking Vronsky's arm, immediately began to speak to him about the subject which concerned him. She showed more excitement than he had ever seen in her. "'I think it is dastardly and vile.' Madame Kartasov had no right to do so. Madame Karenin, she began. But what is the matter? I don't know what you mean. What? You haven't heard anything about it? You can well understand that I should be the last person to hear anything about it. Is there a more wicked creature in the world than this Madame Kartasov? But what did she do? My husband told me about it. She insulted Madame Karenin. Her husband began to speak across from his box to Madame Karenin, and Madame Kartasov made a scene about it. They say she said something very offensive in a loud voice, and went out. "'Count, your maman is calling you,' said the young Princess Sorokin, opening the door of the box. "'I have been waiting for you all this time,' said his mother to him, with a sarcastic smile. "'We never see anything of you now.' 
the son saw that she could not conceal a smile of satisfaction. "'Good evening, Maman. I was coming to see you,' he replied coolly. "'What, I hope you are not going faire la cour à Madame Karenine,' she added, when the young princess Sorokina was out of hearing. "'Elle font sensation. On oublie la petite pour elle.' "'Maman, I have begged you not to speak to me about her,' he replied gloomily. "'I only say what everybody is saying.' Vronsky did not reply, and, after exchanging a few words with the young princess, he went out. He met his brother at the door. "'Ah, Alexey,' said his brother, "'how abominable! She is a fool, nothing more. I was just wishing to go to see Madame Karenin. Let us go together.' Vronsky did not heed him. He ran hastily down the steps, feeling he ought to do something, but knew not what. He was stirred with anger, because Anna had placed them both in such a false position, and at the same time he felt deep pity for her suffering. He went down onto the parquet, and thence directly to Anna's loge. Stremov was leaning on the box, talking with her. "'There are no more tenors,' he said. "'Le moule en esbris, the mould is broken.' from which they came. Vronsky bowed to her, and stopped, exchanging greetings with Stremov. "'You came late, it seems to me, and you lost the best aria,' said Anna to Vronsky, looking at him scornfully, as it seemed to him. "'I am not a very good judge,' he replied, looking at her severely. "'Like Prince Yashvin,' she said, smiling, "'who thinks Patty sings too loud.' "'Thank you,' she said taking the program that Vronsky passed to her in her little hand, encased in a long glove, and at the same moment her beautiful face quivered. She rose and went to the back of the box. The last act had hardly begun, when Vronsky, seeing Anna's box empty, left the parquet, though he was hissed for disturbing the quiet of the theatre while a cavatina was going on, and went back to the hotel. Anna was already in her room. When Vronsky went to her, she was sitting in the same toilet which she had worn at the theatre. She was sitting in the first chair she had come to, near the wall, looking straight before her. When she saw Vronsky enter, she glanced at him without moving. "'Anna,' he said. "'You! You are to blame for it all!' she exclaimed, rising with tears of anger and despair in her voice. "'I begged you, I implored you, not to go. I knew that it would be unpleasant to you.' "'Unpleasant!' she exclaimed. "'It was horrible!' I shall not forget it as long as I live. She said that it was a disgrace to sit near me. She was a stupid woman to say such a thing. But why did you run the risk of hearing it? Why did you expose yourself? I hate your calm way. You should never have driven me to this. If you loved me. Anna, what has my love to do with this? Yes, if you loved me as I love you, if you suffered as I, she said, looking at him with an expression of terror. He felt sorry for her, and yet he was vexed with her. He protested his love because he saw that it was the only way to calm her, and he refrained from reproaching her, but in his heart he reproached her. And his expressions of love, which seemed to him so banal that he was ashamed of himself for repeating them, she drank in and gradually became herself again. Two days later they left for the country, completely reconciled. End of chapter 33 and end of part 5 of Anna Karenina by Leo Tolstoy
Translated by Nathan Haskell Doyle. Part six, chapter one of Anna Karenina. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Marianne Spiegel. Anna Karenina by Leo Tolstoy. Translated by Nathan Haskell Doyle. Part six, chapter one. Darya Alexandrovna, with her children, was spending the summer at Pokrovskoye, at the house of her sister, Kitty Levin. The house on her own estate, Yergoshevo, was all in ruins, and Levin and his wife had urged her to come to them for the summer. Stefan Arkadyevitch heartily approved of this arrangement. He assured them that he very much regretted that his duties would prevent him from spending the summer with his family in the country, for that would be the greatest possible delight for him, and if he stayed in Moscow he could occasionally run down for a day or two at a time. Besides the Oblonskys and all their children, the Levins had with them the old princess, who considered her presence near her daughter at this particular time indispensable. They had also Varenka, Kitty's sodden friend, who was fulfilling her promise of making Kitty a visit when she should have been married. All these were Kitty's relatives and friends. Levin, though he liked them all, still felt some regret for his own people and his own ways, which were swallowed up as in a flood of the Sherbatsky element, as he called it. Of his own relatives that summer, Sergey Ivanovitch was the only representative, and he was not a Levin, but a Kosnuyshev so that the leaven spirit was in a great discount. There were so many persons in the long deserted house that almost all the rooms were occupied, and almost every day the old princess, as she sat down at table, would count the guests and send off to the special table the grandson or granddaughter who made the number thirteen. And Kitty, diligently occupied with her housekeeping, found it no small burden to provide turkeys, chickens, and ducks for the satisfaction of the various appetites of young and old, made keen by the country air. The whole family were at table. Dolly's children were planning to go out and hunt for mushrooms with the governess and Varenka, when, to the great astonishment of all, Sergey Ivanovitch, who enjoyed along all the guests a great reputation, amounting almost to reverence, on account of his wit and learning, evidenced a desire to join the expedition. "'Allow me to go with you,' said he, addressing Varenka. I am very fond of getting mushrooms. I think it is a very admirable occupation. Why, certainly, we shall be very glad, she answered, blushing. Kitty exchanged looks with Dolly. The proposition of the learned and intellectual Sergey Ivanovitch to go with Varenka after mushrooms confirmed an idea which had been engaging Kitty for some time. She hastened to say something to her mother, so that their looks might not be observed. After dinner, Sergey Ivanovitch was sitting at the drawing-room window with his cup of coffee, still talking with his brother on some topic which they were discussing, but he kept his eyes on the door through which the children would have to pass when they should start after the mushrooms. Eleven was sitting at the window near his brother. Kitty was standing near her husband, evidently expecting the end of a conversation which did not interest her, so that she might say something to him. "'You have changed a good deal since you were married, and for the better,' said Sergey Ivanovitch, smiling at Kitty, and evidently not taking much interest either in the conversation, 
but at the same time he remained true to his passion for defending the most paradoxical themes. "'Katya, it is not well for you to stand,' said her husband, moving up a chair for her and giving her a significant look. "'Well, we will finish this some other time,' said Sergey Ivanovitch, as he saw the children come running out. In advance of the rest, galloping sidewise in her tightly fitting stockings, came Tanya, waving a basket, and Sergey Ivanovitch's hat. Boldly darting up to him, and with sparkling eyes, they were just like her father's handsome eyes, she gave Sergey Ivanovitch his hat, and made believe that she was going to put it on him, tempering her audacity with a timid and affectionate smile. "'Varenka is waiting,' said Tanya, carefully putting his hat on his head, seen by Sergey Ivanovitch's smile that she might do so. Varenka was standing at the door. She had put on a yellow muslin frock, and had tied a white hat over her head. "'I am coming. I am coming, Vara Andreyevna,' cried Sergey Ivanovitch, finishing his cup of coffee and putting his handkerchief and cigarette-case into his pocket. "'Isn't Varenka charming?' asked Kitty of her husband, as Sergey Ivanovitch got up. She said this so that he might hear, for this was what she especially wanted. And how pretty she is, royally pretty. Varenka, cried Kitty, are you going to the woods by the mill? We will join you there. You really forget your condition, Kitty, said the old princess, warningly, as she came hastily to the door. You ought not to shout so loud. Varenka, on hearing Kitty's voice and the princess's reproof, came up to them with quick, light steps. Her quickness of motion, the bright color that flushed her cheek, all proved that some metamorphosis was taking place in her. Kitty knew that this was something unusual, and she watched her attentively. She now called Varenka only for the sake of bestowing on her a silent benediction, in the interest of an important event which she firmly believed would take place that day in the woods. Varenka, I shall be very glad if a certain thing comes to pass— she said to her in a whisper, and giving her a kiss. "'Are you coming with us?' asked Varenka of Levin, confused, and pretending that she had not heard what had been said. "'Yes, but only as far as the barns. I shall have to stop there.' "'What do you propose to do there?' asked Kitty. "'I have some new carts to examine and test. And where shall I find you?' "'On the terrace.' End of chapter 1 Part Six, Chapter Two of Anna Karenina by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Nathan Haskell Doyle. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Marianne Spiegel. All the women were gathered on the terrace. They generally liked to sit there after dinner, but today they had a special matter of interest before them. Besides the making of baby shirts and the knitting of bands, in which all of them were engaged at that time. They were engaged in superintending the cooking of some preserves after a recipe unknown to Agafya Mihalovna. Kitty had brought with her this new process, which had been used in her own home and required no water. Agafya Mihalovna, who had before been shown how to do it in this way, considering that what had always been done at the Levens could not be improved on, insisted on pouring water into the berries, declaring it could not be made otherwise. She had been detected doing this and now the berries were cooking in the presence of them all, and Agafya Mikhailovna was to be brought to a realizing sense of the fact that the preserves could be made without the use of the water. 
Agafya Mikhailovna, with flushed and heated face and dishevelled hair, and with her sleeves rolled up to the elbow, was moving a porringer round and round over a portable stove and looking gloomily at it, wishing with all her soul that the berries would thicken and not boil. The old princess, conscious that Agafya Mikhailovna's indignation must be directed against her as the chief adviser in the concoction of the sweetmeat, pretended that she was busy with something else and was not interested in it. But though she talked of extraneous affairs, she occasionally glanced at the cooking out of the corner of her eyes. "'I always buy my girls' dresses at a cheap shop,' the princess was saying, in regard to something they had been talking about. "'Hadn't you better take off the scum, my dear?' she added, addressing Agafya Mikhailovna. "'It is not at all necessary for you to do it, and it is hot,' said she, stopping Kitty. "'I will do it,' said Kitty, who had got up and was carefully stirring the boiling sugar with a spoon, occasionally pouring out a little on a plate, which was already covered with a variegated, yellowish-red, and sanguine scum, mixed with syrup. "'How they would like to lick it,' she said to herself, thinking of her children, and remembering how she herself, when she was a little girl, had wondered that grown-up people did not feed upon that best of all things, scum. "'Steva says it is far better to give money,' Dolly was saying, in regard to the question of making presents, which they had been discussing. "'But—' "'How can one give money?' exclaimed the mother and Kitty simultaneously. "'They despise it.' "'Well, for example, last year I bought our Matryona Semyonovna, not a poplin, but some of that kind,' said the princess. "'I remember she wore it on your name-day. "'A lovely figure, so simple and ladylike. "'I should have liked one of it myself, if she had not one, "'like the kind Varenka wears, so pretty and cheap.' "'Now I think it is done,' said Dolly, dropping the syrup from the spoon. "'When it crystallizes, it is done. Cook it a little more, Agafya Mikhailovna.' "'What an absurdity!' exclaimed Agafya Mikhailovna. "'It would be the same anyway,' she added. "'Oh, what a beauty he is! Don't scare him!' suddenly exclaimed Kitty, looking at a sparrow which perched on the rail, and, turning the heart of a berry over, began to peck at it. "'Yes, but you ought to be farther away from the charcoal,' said her mother. "'Apropos de Varenka,' said Kitty in French, in which language, indeed, they had been speaking all the time, so that Agafya Mikhailovna might not understand them. "'Do you know, maman, that I somehow expect something decided? You know what I mean. How nice it would be!' "'What a master-hand at matchmaking you are!' exclaimed Dolly. "'How adroitly she has brought them together!' "'No,' "'But tell me, maman, what do you think of it?' "'What do I think of it? "'He can at any time have his choice of all the best in Russia.' "'By he,' she meant Sergey Ivanovitch. "'He is not so young as he was, but still, I know many would set their caps for him. "'She is very good, but he might—' "'No, indeed, you know perfectly well that nothing better could be imagined for either of them. "'In the first place, she is charming.' said Kitty, bending down one finger. "'She pleases him very much, that is true,' said Dolly, in confirmation. "'In the next place, he has such a position in the world that it would make no difference to him what his wife's property or social standing was. He needs only one thing—a sweet, pretty, even-tempered wife.' "'Yes, he might be very happy with her,' said Dolly, in confirmation of this also. "'In the third place, 
she must love him and so it is now and so it would be perfectly lovely i expect when they come in from the woods it will all be decided i shall read it instantly in their eyes i should be so glad what do you think about it dolly don't get so excited you really must not get so excited said her mother but i am not excited mamma i think that he will surely propose to her to-day oh how strange it is how and when a man proposes even if there is an obstacle it is suddenly swept away said dolly smiling pensively and recalling the old days with stepan arkadyevitch mamma how did papa propose to you asked kitty suddenly there was nothing extraordinary about it very simply replied the princess but her face grew all radiant at the remembrance no but how was it and did you love him before you allowed him to speak kitty found a special charm in the fact that now she could talk with her mother as with an equal on the most important questions in the lives of women of course i loved him he came to visit us in the country but how was it decided mamma do you really think that you young people have invented something new it is always one and the same thing it is decided by looks and smiles how well you describe it mamma that is just it by looks and smiles said dolly confirming what her mother had said but what words did he say what words did kostya say to you he wrote in chalk how long it seems since then said kitty and the three ladies sat occupied with the same thought kitty was the first to break the silence she had been thinking about that long past winter before her marriage and her infatuation for vronsky there is one thing varenka's first love said she remembering this by a natural connection of thought i wanted to give sergey ivanovitch a hint of that to warn him all men she added are awfully jealous of our past not at all said dolly you judge by your husband i believe he is even now tormented by the remembrance of vronsky isn't that so he is replied kitty with a pensive smile in her eyes well i don't know what there is in your past life to disquiet him exclaimed the princess her mother resenting the inference that her maternal vigilance was called in question is it because vronsky paid you some attention that happens to every young girl yes but we were not talking about that said kitty blushing no permit me to finish what i was saying pursued the princess and besides you yourself would not permit me to have an explanation with vronsky do you remember oh mamma exclaimed kitty with an exclamation of pain there is no need of your being vexed your behavior toward him could never have been anything but perfectly proper i myself should have challenged him however my darling don't allow yourself to get excited please remember this and calm yourself i am perfectly calm maman how fortunate it turned out for kitty that anna appeared on the scene said dolly and how unfortunate for her how their positions are reversed she added overwhelmed by her own thought anna was so happy then and kitty thought herself so miserable i often think of her what a complete change what is the use of thinking about her she is a vile disgusting heartless woman exclaimed the princess who could not forget that kitty had married levin instead of vronsky what is the good of speaking about her anyway said kitty in disgust i do not think about her 
nor do I wish to think of her at all. I do not wish to think about her, she repeated, hearing her husband's well-known step on the steps leading to the terrace. Whom do you wish not to think about? asked Levin, appearing on the terrace. No one answered, and he did not repeat his question. I am sorry that I am disturbing your feminine realm, said he, looking angrily at them all, and perceiving that they were talking about something which they would not talk about in his presence. For an instant he felt that he shared Agafya Mikhailovna's sentiments. Her dissatisfaction at the Sherbatsky's way of making preserves without water, and especially the alien regime of his wife's family. Nevertheless, he smiled and went up to Kitty. "'Well, how is it?' he asked, looking at her with the same expression everyone used in addressing her. "'All right,' said Kitty, with a smile. "'And how is it with you?' "'The three-horse team will take a larger load than we could put on the Talyega. "'Shall we go to meet the children? I have ordered the men to harness.' "'What? Are you going to take Kitty?' "'In the Lenyeka, exclaimed the princess reproachfully. "'We shall walk the horses, princess.' Levin never called the princess Maman, as his brothers-in-law did, and the princess resented it. But Levin, though he loved and respected her, could not call her so without doing violence to his feelings toward the memory of his own mother. "'Come with us, Maman,' said Kitty. "'I do not wish to countenance such imprudence.' "'Well,' then i will walk that is good for me said kitty rising to take her husband's arm good for you but there's reason in all things said the princess well agafya mikhailovna are your preserves done is the new method good asked levin smiling at the housekeeper in his desire to cheer her perhaps they're good but in my opinion much overdone there's one thing about them that's better agafya mikhailovna they won't spoil, said Kitty, divining her husband's intention, and with the same feeling addressing the old servant. And you know the ice in the ice-house is all melted, and we can't get any more. As for your spiced meats, Mamma assures me that she has never eaten any better, she said, adjusting, with a smile, the housekeeper's loosened neckerchief. Agafya Mikhailovna looked angrily at Kitty. Do not try to console me, Baronya. To see you with him— is enough to content me. This familiar way of speaking of her master touched Kitty. Come, and show us the best places to find mushrooms. The old woman raised her head, smiling, as if to say, One would gladly guard you from all hatred, if it were possible. Follow my advice, please, and put over each pot of jelly a round piece of paper soaked in rum, and you will not need ice in order to preserve them, said the princess. End of chapter 2 Part 6, Chapter 3 of Anna Karenina by Leo Tolstoy Translated by Nathan Haskell Doyle The Slippervox recording is in the public domain. Read by Marianne Spiegel Kitty was especially glad of the opportunity to be alone with her husband, because she had noticed how a shadow of dissatisfaction had crossed his tell-tale face when he stepped on the terrace and asked what they were talking about, and no one replied. As they walked along in front of the others, and, losing sight of the house, took to the well-trodden, dusty road, bestrewn with rye and corn, she seized his hand and pressed it against her side. He had already forgotten the momentary unpleasant impression, and now that he was alone with her, 
and while the thought of her approaching maternity did not for an instant escape from his mind, he experienced a novel joy in the sense of the presence of a beloved woman, a joy perfectly free from anything sensual. There was nothing special to talk about, but he liked to hear the sound of her voice, which, like the expression of her eyes, had changed owing to her condition. In her voice, and in her eyes, there was a gentleness and gravity, like that which people show when their attention has been concentrated on some one favorite task. "'You are not getting tired, are you? Lean on me more,' said he. "'No, I am so glad to have a chance to be alone with you, and I confess that I miss our winter evenings when we two were alone together, much as I enjoy having them here.' "'That was good. But this is better. Both are better.' said he, pressing her hand. "'Do you know what we were talking about when you came?' "'About preserves?' "'Yes, about preserves. But afterward about the way men propose.' "'Ah,' said Levin, listening rather to the sound of her voice than to the words which she spoke, and all the time thinking of the road which they were following down to the forest, and carefully avoiding the places that might cause her to stumble.' But how about Sergey Ivanovitch and Varenka? Have you noticed it? I very much wish it might come about, she went on to say. What do you think about it? And she glanced into his face. I don't know what to think, replied Levin, with a smile. Sergey, in this respect, was always a mystery to me. I think I told you about it. Yes, that he was in love with a young girl, but she died. That was when I was a child. I knew it by tradition. I remember him as he was then. He was wonderfully charming. But since then I have watched him with women. He is polite. He likes some of them. But you can't help feeling that for him they are merely people, not women. Yes. But now in the case of Varenka, it seems to me there is some... Maybe there is. But one must know him. He is a peculiar a remarkable man. He lives only a spiritual life. He is too pure and high-minded a man. What do you mean? How could this bring him to a lower level? I don't say it would, but he is so accustomed to live a spiritual life only that he cannot reconcile himself to what is matter-of-fact, and Varenka is quite matter-of-fact. Levin, by this time, had become accustomed to speak his thoughts with all freedom not taking pains to couch it in explicit words. He knew that his wife in such moments of intimate communion as now would understand what he expressed by a hint, and she did understand him. Yes, but she has none of that practicality such as I have. I can understand that he would never fall in love with me. She is all soul. That is not so. He is so fond of you. And I am always so glad that my friends like you. Yes, he is kind to me, but— But not as it was with our lamented Nikolenka. You loved each other, said Levin, in conclusion. But why not speak it out, he added. I often reproach myself that one so quickly forgets. Oh, what a terrible, what a fascinating man he was. But what were we talking about, said Levin, after a silence. You mean that he is incapable of falling in love— said she, expressing her husband's thought in her own way. I did not say that, but he has none of that weakness which is requisite. 
and I always have envied him, and envy him still, in spite of my happiness. You envy him because he is incapable of falling in love? I envy him because he is better than I am, said Levin, smiling. He does not live for himself. It is duty which guides him, and so he has a right to be serene and well satisfied. And you? asked Kitty, with a mischievous smile. He could never follow the course of her thoughts when they caused her to smile. But the last deduction was that her husband, who had the greatest admiration for his brother, and who humbled himself before him, was insincere. Kitty knew that this insincerity of his was caused by his love for him, from a sort of conscientious scruple at being too happy, and especially from a never-ceasing desire to be better, and she loved this in him, and that was why she smiled. "'But why should you be dissatisfied?' she asked, with the same smile. Her disbelief in his self-dissatisfaction pleased him, and he unconsciously provoked her to explain the reasons for her unbelief. "'I am happy, but I am dissatisfied with myself.' said he. "'How can you be dissatisfied, if you are happy?' "'How can I express it? In my heart of hearts I wish nothing else except that you should not stumble.' "'Oh, you must not jump so,' he exclaimed, interrupting his argument with reproach, because she had made a too vivacious motion in jumping over a branch which lay in the path. "'But when I criticize myself, and compare myself with others, especially with my brother,' I am conscious of all my inferiority. But why? persisted Kitty, with the same smile. Aren't you always doing for others? And your farming, your book? Yes, I feel this especially now, and you are to blame, said he, pressing her hand. I do this so, so superficially. Ah, uh, if I could love all this work as I love you— but of late I work on it as if it were a task imposed on me. "'But what do you say about Papa?' asked Kitty. "'Is he unworthy because he does nothing for the Commonwealth?' "'He? Oh, no! But one must have just such simplicity, transparency, goodness, as he has. But I haven't, have I? If I do not work, I am tormented. "'Tis you who have made it so. If it were not for you—' and if it were not for what is coming, said he, with a significant glance at her figure, I should devote all my powers to this work, but now I can't, and my conscience pricks me. I do it like a task. It is all pretense. Would you like to exchange with Sergey Ivanovitch? asked Kitty. Would you like to work for nothing but your duty, and the general welfare of mankind? Of course not. The fact is, I am so happy that I can't reason clearly. So you think the proposal will take place today, do you? He asked, after a moment's silence. I think so, and then I think not. But I wish with all my heart it might. Here, wait. She stooped down and plucked a daisy growing by the roadside. Now count. He'll propose, he'll not propose, said she, giving him the flower. He'll propose, he'll not propose repeated Levin, picking off the narrow, white, trembling petals. "'No, no!' cried Kitty, stopping him and seizing his arm, as she excitedly watched his fingers. "'You pulled off, too!' "'Well, that little one doesn't count,' said Levin, tearing off a short, undeveloped petal. "'But here comes the Lenyenka to meet us.' "'Kitty!' 
"'You haven't fatigued yourself?' cried the princess. "'Not the least in the world, mamma. "'Well, get in, if the horses are quiet and we'll walk.' But there was no need of riding. The place was so near, they continued walking. End of chapter 3「Varenka, in her white kerchief, setting off her dark locks, and surrounded by children whom she was good-naturedly and gaily entertaining, and evidently excited by the possibility of a declaration from a man who was agreeable to her, was very fascinating.' Sergey Ivanovitch walked by her side and could not help admiring her. As he looked at her, he recalled all the pleasant remarks he had heard her make, all the goodness that he had found in her, and he confessed to himself more and more that the feeling which she aroused in him was something peculiar, like what he had experienced once, only long, long before, in his early youth. The feeling of pleasure at being near her kept growing stronger, and at last when, as he put into her basket a monstrous birch mushroom with thin stem and edges. He looked into her eyes and, noticing the blush of pleasure and timid emotion which spread over her face, he himself grew confused and smiled with a mute smile which said too much. "'If this is the way it is going, I must deliberate and come to a decision, and not give way like a child to the impulse of a moment.' I am going now to hunt for mushrooms independently of the rest of you, otherwise my acquisitions will not be noticed," said he, and he went off by himself from the edge of the woods, where they had been walking along the velvety turf among the old birch-trees, scattered here and there in the forest, together with the grey trunks of aspens and dark clumps of hazelnuts. Going off forty steps or so, and coming to a clump of the bush called Beresklet, which was in full flower with its rosy catkins, Sergey Ivanovitch sheltered himself behind it, knowing that he would not be seen. Around him it was perfectly still, only up in the treetops above his head, ceaseless, like a swarm of bees, buzzed the flies, and occasionally he heard the voices of the children. Suddenly, not far from the edge of the woods, rang out Varenka's contralto voice, calling Grisha, and a happy smile spread over Sergey Ivanovitch's face. When he realized what he was doing, he shook his head disapprovingly at his state of mind, and, taking out a cigar, he began to smoke. It was some time before he could light a match against the bowl of a birch-tree. The juicy scales of the white bark dampened the phosphorus, and the match refused to burn. At last one of the matches took fire, and the fragrant cigar-smoke, like a wide, wavering scarf, floated up and away above the bush under the pendant twigs of the birches. As he followed the whiff of smoke with his eyes, Sergey Ivanovitch slowly walked on, thinking over the situation. "'And why should I not?' he asked himself. "'If this was a caprice of passion, if I had experienced only this attachment, this mutual attachment, for I may call it mutual,' and if I felt that it would run counter to the whole scheme of my life, if I felt that in giving way to this impression I should change my calling and duty, then it would not do at all. The one thing that I can bring against it is that when I lost Marie, I vowed that I would never marry 
in remembrance of her. This is the only thing that I can say against this feeling. This is serious, said Sergey Ivanovitch to himself, but at the same time he recognized that this consideration had personally for him no great importance, but would simply spoil in the eyes of others the poetic role which he had been keeping up so long. But besides this, no matter how long I searched, I should never find out what would be said against my feeling. If I used all my wits, I could never find any one better. Among all the women and girls whom he had ever known, he could not think of one who united to such a high degree all, yes, verily, all the qualities which in a cold calculation he should wish to see in his wife. She had all the freshness and charm of youth, and yet she was no longer a child. And if she loved him, she loved him sensibly, as a woman ought to love. This was one thing. Another was, she was not only far removed from worldly-mindedness, but evidently found fashionable society distasteful. But at the same time she knew society well, and had all those ways of a woman of good society, lacking which married life for Sergey Ivanovitch was unthinkable. Thirdly, she was religious, but not like a child, irresponsibly religious and good, as Kitty, for example, was, but her life was founded on religious convictions. Even in trifles, Sergey Ivanovitch found in her all that he desired in a wife. She was poor and unencumbered, so that she would not bring a throng of relatives and their influence into her husband's home, as he saw was the case with Kitty. But she would be in everything pledged to her husband, which was one of the conditions which he had demanded for himself in case he ever had any family life. And this young woman, having all these qualities, loved him. He was modest, but he could not help seeing this. And he liked her. One obstacle stood in the way his age. But his family were long-lived. He had not as yet a single gray hair. No one took him to be more than forty, and he remembered that Varenka had said that only in Russia men of fifty considered themselves old, while in France a man of fifty reckoned himself dans la force de l'âge, and one of forty was un jeune homme. But what signified his years when he felt himself as young in spirit as he had been twenty years before? Was not youth the feeling which he enjoyed when, coming out again from the forest into the clearing, he saw in the clear sunlight Varenka's graceful figure in her yellow frock and with her basket, moving along with light steps past the bole of an ancient birch-tree, and the impression produced by the sight of Varenka blended with the surprising beauty of a field of oats shining yellow under the oblique rays of the sun, and beyond the field the old forest, variegated with yellow and stretching away into the azure distance? His heart swelled with joy. A feeling of tenderness seized him. He felt within him that his mind was made up. Varenka, who had just stooped down to pick up a mushroom, with an agile motion straightened herself up again and glanced around. Sergey Ivanovitch, tossing away his cigar, went toward her with resolute steps. End of chapter 4